What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 263 with my guest, therapist intern, Aaron Fox Bishop. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code MENTAL at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. You should. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Herbert, Ivy? Sound like somebody was coming into the room. Uh, check out the website for our uh, our show. It's mentalpod.com. Uh, Mentalpod is also the, the Twitter handle you can follow me at. Um, on our website, you can fill out surveys that maybe we'll read on the show. You can also see how other people filled out the surveys, revealing their deepest, darkest thoughts, secrets, and struggles. Um, you can read blogs and guest blogs. You can financially support the show. Uh, all kinds of good stuff there. So, yeah, go check it out, mentalpod.com. Um, today's episode, uh, I really love. It's... Um, it's with Erin Fox Bishop, who is a, a, she's almost, I don't know if she's almost done uh, doing her hours, but she's a, a therapist intern. She's working on her hours, working on getting her license. And um, she just uh, is so open and honest about her life and her struggles. Um, and then at the end of the episode, she takes uh, a couple of the surveys and we go through that with her. And uh, it's just, I just love it. So... I don't know why I feel the need to pump up the episode. I think part of me feels like you're ready to bail on me. You know, you're, I caught your eyes darting towards the doorway, and uh, I'm getting a little nervous. I, I have some abandonment issues. I'm not going to lie. And, but I also got to say, you've been pretty fucking undependable. 
there's a couple of times in the last two weeks that uh, that I needed you and you weren't there. So, uh, listener, I think you and I need to go back to counseling together. <laughs> How codependent would that make me if I felt that I needed to go to counseling with every single one of the listeners? I couldn't afford to go to counseling three times a week. <laughs> See the joke I made there? I only have three listeners. All right. This is a struggle in a sentence uh, survey. Oh, I want to give a shout out to um, a podcast that I love, and run by people that I love. It's called Taboo Tales. And uh, you remember Loren Sala. She was a guest uh, on our uh, our podcast. And she runs it with uh, Simone, who was also a guest on our podcast. And they've had guests like, that's where I f- found uh, Andrea Abbott as a guest. It's where I found Derek Block, who shared about Scientology. Anyway, they not only do a live show in L.A., but they also have a Taboo Tales podcast now. And I just want to urge you guys to go check it out. If you like this show, you will love their podcast. It's just great storytelling about stuff that's taboo. And I did one. And um, I had fun, even though it was terrifying. Uh, One also report I I, I mentioned uh, about a DNA test uh, called GeneSight that somebody was asking about where they test um, your DNA and find out what kind of drugs you can or can't metabolize. And it can assist your psychiatrist in uh, figuring out what type of meds might work for you. And the response that I've gotten, because because I said, I haven't heard anything about it. Let's put it out there to the listeners and you guys let me know if you've had any experience. And uh, so far, about a half a dozen people have said that they've used uh, the DNA tests and uh, with positive results, it, it has helped them uh, and their psychiatrist figure out what, what kinds of uh, meds might or might not work for them. Uh, yeah, that's it. All right. Some surveys. This was filled out. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself fed up about her codependency. She writes, how can I not be involved when they involve me? I get it. This was, uh, I love this name, filled out by a woman who calls herself one fucked up Canuck um, about her PTSD, constantly scared of my own shadow, always on edge about being a sex crime victim, just one word, dirty. About having dissociative identity disorder, she writes, I feel like a crazy ringleader at a circus. And then a snapshot uh, from her life, she writes, dissociation is a huge problem for me. I used to look at at it I used to look at it as an adventure anytime I left the house. I never knew where I'd end up. I would zone out and end up getting lost. Sometimes a town a couple of hours away. Me left with no memory of how I got there. Uh, however, lately it has become scary as I've been put into some unsafe situations, been through many therapists and still looking for some help. Well, sending you some, some love and some, some good vibes. And, um, I can't imagine how confusing and overwhelming that, that must be. Um, this is struggle in a sentence. I think these are all struggle in a sentence. Yeah, they are. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself, actually, she's a teenager. She calls herself Eggles. And about her depression, she writes, it feels like I'm on a hamster wheel, uh, hamster wheel, uh, and everyone else is on a normal, 
running machine. The faster I run, the closer I get to the top, the harder it hurts when I fall on my face. Sometimes I just want to stop running, but I'm scared of how much it will hurt when I fall down. Snapshot from her life. Being in drama class and being cast as a character with severe depression and being congratulated and told how great of an actor I was. This is filled out by uh, another uh, teenage girl who writes about uh, her anxiety. Uh, What if they don't like my answer? Oh, I'll just do nothing. Invisible is best. This was filled out by a gender-fluid person who calls themselves uh, Cat Sparrow. And uh, they write uh, a snapshot from their life. I need to go to the grocery store, but there are people there uh, I'd have to interact with. And what if I say something weird by mistake? And I am so tired. I guess I don't need anything to eat. I bet a lot of people relate to that one. And then this is from Snake Lady, who um, has a variety of issues. um, And a snapshot of her life is, uh, she writes, uh, it's like life is an agility course. Everyone else is border collies, and I am a bulldog. I fear that I'm inadequate. Fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness. Is convincing myself. I'm so alone. Why? Hypervigilance. I should try to do something. I hate my kids seeing me like that. I just imagine killing people. I woke up with rats in my hair. They warp reality. Am I losing myself or am I becoming myself? I go back to bed. Hiding underneath the sofa while people were shooting outside the house. I was able to get myself out of Scientology. Put a gun to my mother's head and I was 11 years old. Then you just garbage moving from one person's house to the next person's house and you just hope they don't throw you out like garbage. You know, so I planned my suicide. Because you won't ask for help. I'm asking for help. I'm not pretending everything's okay. I'm not trying to do it alone. I'm really happy that I did it because a lot of good things have happened since then. That, that option just evaporated and I'm, I'm not going to kill myself. I don't think I have what the woman who is not right for me anyway <laughs> wants. I'm here with Aaron Fox Bishop who is an intern therapist you're working on your hours. I uh, hope to be licensed by the end of the year. Maybe at the, by next year. No, you will have it done by next <laughs> okay. year. Okay. I'm not asking. I'm telling. Thank you for your, your confidence. Uh, do you remember how we connected? Did you shoot me an email? I did. Um, actually, I found the podcast in the summer of 2014 and when I was going through a really tough depression, and it was a... a bright shining light and a period of a lot of darkness so when i got through the depression i reached out and let you know how helpful it was uh i i remember um i have a terrible memory uh but what i do remember is i said well let's get together and meet and have coffee and see if there's a way that we can join forces and yeah uh, help each other and I was going through a really tough time and I just poured my guts out to you and uh, you were very comforting and very very supportive so I want to it's amazing how we lean on each other and uh, it goes back and forth and, and in a nutshell to me it's kind of like uh, just support groups everywhere yep um, one of the things that I'm excited to talk to you about is you are you are willing to share um, some of your personal struggles on the podcast as yes. well as sharing from the perspective of a, uh, a therapist intern as best I can as best you can. Um, so where where should we 
begin? Do you want to talk about your life uh, a little bit? Why don't we do that, and sure. then we can uh, then we can read some of the listener surveys and listener questions that they submitted through uh, through social media. Okay. Uh, you were born and raised here, correct? Yeah, born and raised in Los Angeles. And what was home life like? Home life was from the outside, um, really privileged, I guess I would say, um, to professional parents, uh, me and a younger brother. We definitely had all the material things anyone could want growing up in LA. I went to private school for junior high and high school and did well in school. And we looked like a happy family, parents, two kids. Um, So from the outside, I think it was a very privileged upbringing. On the inside, I think there was a lot of emotional (laughs) dysfunction. Um, Neglect or abuse? Somewhere in between? Maybe somewhere in between. Um, I actually once characterized some of what, what went on with my family as emotional abuse, and my it made my mom really, really upset to hear that. Um, so it's hard for me to call it abuse after her reaction to it, but from the perspective of a therapist, a therapist there was some emotional abuse going on, probably not intentional or... I don't think my parents woke up in the morning and said, okay, how can I be abusive or neglectful? Um, I think there's a long history in my family that predates my parents. And it's kind of just a cycle that has perpetuated. And I hope that with my family, we can break it. It's, I would venture to guess that the overwhelming majority of parents are well-intentioned. Yes. And it's funny, when when we come from a place of, and I would imagine the overwhelming majority of parents uh, are probably terrified, and it's amazing how fear can warp reality and make choices or ways of expressing ourselves that seem appropriate at the time. Yeah. Look so incredibly inappropriate in hindsight. Yeah, and I imagine even just the stresses of everyday life and um, and fear and I think ignorance mm-hmm. and not being willing to do work on yourself. And and I think also not processing their their pain. Yeah. That's so easy to uh, what's it, project. Yes. As you guys like <laughs> yes. to call it in the, uh, in the uh, psychology business. Yes. Um, so what do you give me some snapshots from your childhood that you think are kind of emblematic of what your situation was like or who you were as a kid? Hmm. Any seminal moments that kind of stick out to you? Uh, Small well, or large? So I guess going back to being pretty young, like elementary school age. Um, and again, I think it, it was all with good intentions. Uh, whenever I had a, a school project of any significance, my mom would pretty much hijack the project and essentially I would just be her helper on mm-hmm. the project <laughs> because she wanted to make sure it was 
good enough, if not the best project in the class. And I'm sure that, that her reasoning behind that was, oh, well, all the other parents are helping their kids. And I'm sure they were. I don't know what to what degree. But I never, I, I always felt like a fraud when I would bring my project into class, knowing that, you know, my I had just, didn't. my mom basically did it. I mean, I was there. I witnessed it. I followed instructions <laughs> that she gave to me. Um, now that, that was hard for me and, and took, uh, a lot of my sense of, uh, self-efficacy away. And that, that's kind of followed me through my adult life where I often feel like, oh, well, I can't do this. Um, and I have to challenge that automatic thought a lot. Do, do you have a voice in your brain that calls you a fraud? Yes, for sure. Just, I have a voice in my brain that calls me a lot of other awful things. Share them with us if you're comfortable. Oh, a, a fraud, a failure, selfish, generally not good enough, among other things. But those are the main those, ones that those come sound to like mind. the greatest hits that yeah, we all that we all yeah, deal with. If you yeah. really knew me, you wouldn't love me. You exactly. wouldn't be my friend. Yeah, I'm not that nice. I uh, don't actually do things yeah. for the right reasons. Yeah, I was just having a uh, coffee with a friend today, and he and I were both talking about how difficult it is to take a compliment, yeah. and, and how often we want to be recognized. That, but then when we are recognized, we think, "Oh, you don't know." You it's don't true. know. You only know part it's of me. True. You don't. You don't know how selfish I can be. And, it's absolutely you know, true. Or I didn't work as hard on that as you think I did. Or, or how many mistakes I made. Or that, that that there's a portion of me that has an ulterior motive in yes. doing this thing. Yes. Yeah. Um, so give me some other uh, some other snapshots. Hmm. The one that I that really sticks out for me. Uh, so my parents were both in the law um, and specifically my mom uh, was a prosecutor. She's now retired. So she's real good at putting people on the witness stand. And she would had this way of getting information out of you that she would pretend that she already knew something and pretend so convincingly that you would admit to something that she didn't in fact know. And then she would be so angry and you'd be like but i thought you already knew why are you so angry now so um there was this so, one so in a way you felt tricked oh yeah very tricked um it was my first year of college and my dad was planning a surprise birthday party for her for a big birthday um and my mom had a lot of sensitivity about reaching this big birthday see i'm even terrified to say what the birthday was and this was like 15 years ago um or more um and she called me at college and i guess she suspected that this party was happening and she didn't want it but she didn't know for sure if it was and my dad had sworn me to secrecy like don't tell her i want her to be really surprised so she called me and you know just pummeled me with questions and and i i really i was holding strong i was like i'm not no i don't know anything about it i don't know what you're talking about i don't think so and in the end she very sternly said to me aaron i already know that there's a surprise party planned i just need to know when it is so i can prepare myself so i told her the date which i knew 
and she like broke down and was furious and um she said it occurred to me she didn't actually really know there was a surprise party i had just let the cat out of the bag but had been more or less (laughs) manipulated into it and so then I just felt like I was in this terrible position of my dad's going to be mad because I... What a terrible it. position <laughs> yeah. to be put in. Yeah. It it sounds like um, control is is a big issue yeah. in, your, in your household growing up. Uh, yes, and still. Um, do you struggle with control issues? If anything, I, more, I just readily cede my control because I don't i the last thing i want to do is repeat a lot of my mom and dad's behaviors so i often go perhaps too far in the opposite direction so that some of my work is coming a little more to the middle there do you then get resentful that people yes take the power that you put on the table and stepped away from yes how dare you take me up on the thing that i offered (laughs) exactly yeah yeah would that be would that fall under the umbrella of uh codependence or definitely and i've done a little bit of support group work on codependency for yourself for myself Mm -hmm. yeah did you get anything out of it yes and I, I, I admittedly probably should do more work mm-hmm. on it. What are some things, if somebody's out there and listening and they have codependency uh, issues where they easily become enmeshed with mm-hmm. other people or they don't know how to set boundaries mm-hmm. or they want to s- save people, um, what are some of the tools that people can learn going to um, – what are the, the, some of the things they can gain by going to codependency uh, support groups? Well, I, I think the the most valuable thing that can be gained is to know that you're not alone in struggling with codependency. And there's, I thought there was something really powerful about being among other people who maybe with different relationships in their lives, but had issues with boundaries and with sacrificing themselves. Um, and could talk openly about it and even laugh about it, even laugh about it and, and seeing people of all ages, all walks of life. It, it, it it just makes you feel less alone and less like defective. Yeah. I I completely agree. Broken and weird. Mm -hmm. There's something really cathartic when you laugh and cry about something that's universal Mm -hmm. among a, a room full of people who you know the majority of their names, they know your name. There, There is just something, I think, genetic in us that just kind of vibrates, almost like it goes back to that village level of, yes. of we're in this together. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, they're, they're, I, can't, I can't really put it into words, but I can't stress enough uh, how life-changing it can be when you find the right one populated by the the right group of people. I agree. And finding the right one is important because not important. every group is the right fit for every person. No. And and the right meeting of, of the right, you know, the certain meeting of the right group might even be a nightmare, might be populated by toxic people that yes. don't have recovery. Yeah. Um, so give me some other, uh, I feel like we got a good snapshot of, uh, of childhood. Um, is, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, 
share from your adolescence, your early uh, adulthood issues you struggled with? Well, I think what defined my adolescence was depression, pretty debilitating depression. And it started when I was about 12. I I didn't recognize it or name it as depression then. I didn't just was and no one else around me seemed to recognize it because I was always performing well I would do my schoolwork I would whatever activity I was involved in I would do what what was asked of me and usually do it pretty well um so I guess I was a high functioning depressive did you put on the good uh mask that everything's okay or could your parents and uh, your brother see that something was off. Well, that was the thing. I don't feel like I was putting on a mask that everything was okay at home. I mean, I remember there'd be times when I would, you know, all weekend I would just kind of want to stay in bed, um, which I recognize now as as a really big indicator of depression. I was moody, which I guess a lot of teenagers are, but rarely was I happy. Um and I, I can't really compare to someone else's experience because I only lived mine. But looking back on it, I wish someone had recognized that maybe I needed some help um, and probably think someone, one of my parents perhaps, should have seen that something was off. What ideally would you have liked to have happened i think i think even just the acknowledgement from my parents hey it it seems like you're having a hard time um and just even throwing it out to me an open-ended kind of question of is there anything we can do to help or is there anything you need um I, I wonder if that in itself would have created room just to start a dialogue, maybe get me into some therapy. Um, I don't know if I needed medication then. It, it's hard It's hard to know what would have been helpful. Do you take medication today? I do. And when did you start that? So I've been on various iterations of medication. The first one I started with not under a psychiatrist's care, which I do not recommend, uh, was... You were under the care of a street vendor, right? Actually, a gynecologist, which, yes, they're a doctor, but I don't think they're the appropriate Mm -hmm. type of doctor to be prescribing and regulating someone's psychotropic medications. So that was when I was... And then you show your psychiatrist your vagina. Yes, yeah, that's a so it all it all works out. It does all work yeah. out. It does. It balances. <laughs> um, no, I do not show my psychiatrist my vagina. And if your psychiatrist asks to see your vagina or any part of your body, you should run and run far away uh, and report them to the board. Um, I think when I was eighteen or nineteen, I started crying in my gynecologist's office, and he said, "Oh, here, take some Zoloft." Um, why would why would a gynecologist have Zoloft? I don't think. I mean, he wrote a prescription. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he didn't like 
pull out a sample. I was going to say that yeah. would seem very odd yes, no, to he, me. He wrote a prescription for yeah. it. And I think that's actually quite common even still for uh, GPs. GPs, yes, yes. or uh, gynecologists perhaps too, to recommend or even prescribe medication that's not really under their area of expertise. Although now that I think of it, uh, with postpartum depression being so common, um, maybe it would make sense that that some would have it. I don't. I don't know. I'm. Well, I I, ha- I haven't gotten there yet, but mm-hmm. I I did have a baby five months ago and actually went through a pretty severe episode of postpartum depression and was under the care of a wonderful psychiatrist who did collaborate with my OBGYN. Um, but I, I still would argue that the OBGYN was not the person to be managing my care for depression. Um, the psychiatrist was actually essential, and I'm still working with her. Um, you like her? I love her. Um, if there's anyone out there dealing with any kind of depression surrounding pregnancy, because postpartum depression, that would be depression after you have your baby. But there's also, also antepartum depression. People can have depression during pregnancy. Um, and so any anything, or people can have a traumatic birth experience that leads to a depression or a Traumatic anxiety. child loss, a miscarriage. That as well. Yeah. That as well. Um, all of those things, um, I would highly recommend this psychiatrist. Um, Do you want to give the sure her name? Um, out? She may hate me for doing <laughs> this. I don't know how big her patient load is, but no, her name is Kelly Foster. Uh, she she's based in Santa Monica, and that is her specialty. That's her whole deal. She treats women, moms, and if, if you've had a miscarriage or a lost a child. You're you're still a mom. Mm-hmm. Um, Would she know uh, psychiatrists in other cities if somebody or a place she could refer them to? Because you know, obviously, most of our listeners don't live in Los Angeles, and I, I'd like to help them. I too. imagine I don't want to speak for her, but I imagine she ha- she would have contacts and um, or a resource that she could point them to. That yes, because yeah. I know she's affiliated with UCLA, and I imagine there's collaboration with folks from other cities and i don't know that there's a huge network even nationally of psychiatrists who specialize in this uh because really only recently fairly recently like maybe in the last 10 years if that has there been a real recognition of depression associated specifically Mm -hmm. with pregnancy or post-pregnancy as 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 something that's really a separate special thing. Yes. Uh, another thing you could do is you could tweet uh, to Dr. Jessica Zucker, who uh, advocates a lot on postpartum depression. She's oh, a, a therapist, and um, but she goes and speaks around the country and awesome. uh, has a large network of people that she's in contact with. And right. I know that she could uh, retweet it and include somebody else's name right. that she knows. So uh, her Twitter is at uh, Dr. Zucker, Z u c k e r or or email me and i'll forward it to uh to her but um, awesome and there's a lot of episodes of uh this podcast that have dealt with uh postpartum depression uh or some type of trauma around childbirth um so 
on the website, uh, the search box on the website, put in uh, PPD or postpartum depression or uh, pregnancy, and uh, you, you should get some some hits on that. Um, do you want it to talk about the postpartum depression, or should we pick up when you started taking uh, meds? Was it when you were 18? Is 18 you- or 19, okay. yeah, around that time. And, and what was that like? Well, I wasn't really in therapy, so it was just this, okay, I'm going to take some medication. I don't really know if it helped or not. I mean, depression is also a cyclical thing, so sometimes you can do nothing and a depression can eventually lift. But looking back, um, I know medication does work for me now and has over the last 10 years or so. Um, so I'm guessing it helped, but I wasn't, there was no real tracking of what was going on. That's the thing about mental illness. That's just so frustrating is it's like fog. It's yes. like trying to chase fog. Can you describe the fog to us? How many miles wide by miles wide? Well, I don't know. I was in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah. When and, did it roll in? I don't know why I woke up and it was there. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard. It is. Um, do you want to fast forward to the postpartum depression? Are there any seminal moments? Uh, well, I guess I I think an important part of my experience with depression, there's been a lot of anxiety to anxiety is kind of a theme just since the moment I was born, I think. But the, the really crushing symptoms have been associated with depression. Um Although I do think they kind of go hand I, in hand. Absolutely. <laughs> they, they come in a 12-pack. Yes, they do. Yeah. They do. But somehow I'm able to survive the anxiety better than I survive the depression. Um, well, I guess anxiety is activating, whereas depression is... That's a perfect way of putting it. I, yeah. I was trying to search for the way to to say that. And uh, yeah, I think you've nailed it. Activating and deactivating. Mm-hmm. And you can sometimes... You know, when you fool yourself that you're doing okay because you get a lot of shit done maybe when you're anxious. Exactly. And my cycle tends to be that I run myself down completely because of anxiety and then reach this dead end of depression and fall down real deep. That's a pretty sweet one-two punch. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and I so I I was having depressive episodes starting from at least 12 like looking back i can see oh yeah that's what was going on um but my first really huge one where i had suicidal thoughts and was like i was thinking about i think i should take my life because i just can't live like this was when i was about 27 or 28 Mm -hmm. can i ask how old you are now i'm 34 i'm almost 35 okay And it was like something I'd never experienced before. Like I was, I was planning out, you know, when it would be okay from, I didn't really know exactly how I was going to take my life. I was thinking, okay, maybe I'll get a gun. I'll find some pills. It wasn't totally concrete, but I, there was this whole thing. Well, I have to get my affairs in order. I can't kill myself, but leave things for people to clean up so you know I, I, that's so heartbreaking yeah that's so heartbreaking yeah it, it 
it is. And at the same time, it felt very logical at the time. Like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I at least need to have a clean exit. Um, and I, at that, so I've been off and on medication since my mid twenties and I don't, I don't actually remember if that depression, that I was probably off medication when that happened. So I did get myself back into therapy. I did get on meds, uh, Zoloft again. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I was lucky in the sense that I, I respond well to SSRIs. That's the type of medication Mm -hmm. that Zoloft is and relatively quickly. I mean, no antidepressant that I know of starts working the first day or even the first week, but within about two months, I, I definitely notice changes and pretty significant lifting of the intensity of, and, and the suicidal thoughts tend to go away. So, and I stayed in therapy. And so that was good. Came out of that. Um, and I know, I feel like there was one more between then and when I got married. But I, the next one that's coming to mind at this moment is after I got married. My, um, my husband and I have been married a little more than two years. Uh, and this would be the, the one in 2014 when I, uh, after which I got in touch with you. Um, and I, I guess this could be kind of connected to pregnancy and baby stuff because we had been trying to have a baby for a while and it didn't look like it was going to happen. And I had seen a gynecologist who said I would need fertility treatment to get pregnant, which many people need. And it's not ne- it doesn't necessarily mean you can't ever get pregnant. But I was bummed about that. I didn't and if to- you have that fraud, you're not good enough voice in your head to begin with. This is exactly. just here's proof. Yeah, there's something wrong to with that me. mean part of your brain. See, I told you. I, you know, that actually never occurred to me, but I think you're absolutely right. I think that mean part of our brain is always looking yeah. for ammunition. It can never have enough ammunition and it just tucks it away. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was kind of the trigger for that depression. And that one felt even deeper and darker than the last one, as tends to be the case with depression. Each episode for many people gets worse. Um which is scary. And I was intentionally and consciously off medication at that point because we were, the idea was let's see if I can go off medication and try to have a baby because I wanted to try to have a pregnancy without being on medication. And, and for any particular reason? Um, you know, I had read about the possible issues that can arise by being on medication while pregnant. And actually there's there are medications um, that, it's considered safe to be on during pregnancy. But I thought, well, I was in a good place when we made this decision. And I'm like, let's, let's see, you know, my husband was on board with it. He, we were both in agreement that if things got really bad, I'd go back on medication. And there's probably also a voice in your head that was saying, maybe the medication is keeping me from getting pregnant. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if it was that. I, I think it was more just part ego, part, you know, wanting to, have the perfect conditions for a baby like 
no, I want to do it without medication. Like, mm -hmm. I, I got this. Um, so that depression, the suicidal ideation was even worse. Um, and I actually took, I wasn't actually intending to kill myself with a gun, but we did have a gun in our house at that time. Um, and I just, on a really, really dark day, emotionally for me, I knew where it was and I took it out and was just kind of looking at it, um, just kind of to know, okay, well, it's here. And I was just holding it and I took it out in the backyard and I actually accidentally fired it <sighs> um, into this hillside in our backyard um, and nothing happened. I mean, that well, must have scared the shit out oh of my you. God. Well, I thought, did I just shoot my, like, did I just shoot my foot? I wasn't sure. Yeah. Um, and also I could have been, you know, arrested <laughs> for, yeah. for discharging a firearm. Um, thank goodness. I, um, no, it just lodged into this little hillside area. I was not hurt. Um, and no one else was hurt. No one seemed to notice in the neighborhood, or if they did, they didn't do anything about it. But the the terrible, the even more terrible part was, I was so shaken up after that happened that I put the oh sorry, <laughs> I um I was so shaken up after it happened that I brought the gun back into the house and put it down, but it was still cocked such that if you pulled the trigger again. Like, all you would have to do is touch the trigger again, and another right. bullet would fire. And I was not even thinking about that. So I just put it down, and I wrote this note to my husband because I was – I'm like, okay, I need to just go leave and take a drive, maybe go to the beach or something. So I typed out this note to my husband and left it with the gun because I wanted him to know what happened. I didn't want to hide it from him. But he comes home, and he sees the gun in the note, and – First, his first thought is, oh, my God, she killed herself. But then he realized, wait, how her. would the gun get yeah. there? But then he goes to the gun and picks it up. And it's cocked. At, but he didn't realize that immediately. So he could have shot himself accidentally. Fortunately, none of that happened. And he did realize and he uncocked it. And now the gun is hidden from me. And I don't know where it is anymore. But that's probably for the best. But that was just so frightening for both of us. And um, was it a wake up call? Yes. Uh, yes, it was definitely a wake up call. Um, and uh, I went back on Zoloft again, went all took it all the way up to you know, saw a psychiatrist, got back in therapy, took the Zoloft all the way up to the highest dose. But it, it wasn't kicking in. So I switched to Prozac. And I guess somehow, which it's also an SSRI, and somehow the switch to Prozac did it. You know, sometimes with this medication stuff for depression, anxiety. It's a personal thing. And it's it's kind of uh, like experimentation. You're, you're the lab rat, and the psychiatrists, at least the ones I've worked with, have kind of told me up front, well, we don't know what's going to work. It's a lot of throwing darts at the yeah. wall. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, all right, let's try switching to Prozac. and. Fortunately, I didn't have to go through many medications. The next one worked, and um, I don't. Ironically, funny, funnily, um, within a month after going on Prozac, I got pregnant, um, which was 
we were thrilled because did we you name your baby Prozac? We joked about that. We totally joked <laughs> about that. You? Oh my god, we should name this baby Prozac. Um, we we did joke about that. Um, and it it was very very happy because we didn't think we could get pregnant and we and we had sort of stopped trying. It was sort of like okay, crisis mode. Like, um, and it was a little scary because I'm like, okay, so I'm pregnant. I'm on medication. Okay, and I I was committed to I am not going off this medication. I mean, you I talked to the psychiatrist and you do the cost benefit analysis of well, would it be better to have a little bit of medication or to have a mother who's suicidally depressive? Probably better to be on a little bit of medication. And the the studies seem to show that for at least the SSRIs that are considered safe for pregnancy, that there's really a very, very minimal risk of anything um, for the fetus because the fetus doesn't even get the whole, like even a, a, a it gets a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of the dose that you're taking. Stay not, so actually, Prozac, I thought it was the Prozac helping, um, but I think it was really the hormones associated with pregnancy that made me feel so good. But oh. throughout pregnancy, I was horribly sick physically for the whole pregnancy. So it was kind of like vomiting, vomiting, like. There was a couple months where I was like literally in bed for a couple months because I couldn't eat. I, like, like oh it was God. that, and that was terrible. But I wasn't depressed. I was like, oh my God, I'm so sick. But I was hopeful, and and throughout the pregnancy, even though lots of discomfort and lots of sickness and nice nauseous all the way to the end, um, I was like in a good mood. Um, and I'm like, great Prozac and. Um, I knew I was at high risk for postpartum depression because people with a history of depression have a very high risk of postpartum depression. But I thought, no problem. Look how happy or at least high spirited I've been during pregnancy. I'm on the Prozac. I'm going to stay on the Prozac after I give birth. We're great. Smooth sailing. Um, without, that's not how it turned out. Um, Fortunately, because of my training and experience, I was on pretty high alert and like knew pretty early on when things were starting to go wrong. I would say about six weeks after my son was born, you know, when after that initial kind of hormone rush after you give birth, um, I ended up with an emergency C-section. So for three, four weeks, I was on, you know, all the good Vicodin or whatever. I don't even remember, but that makes you feel pretty good. And so... All right, six weeks out, no more happy drugs, um, hormones levels plummet. I was breastfeeding, and so that keeps your hormone levels, your estrogen basically non-existent. And I think that, I'm speculating, but I'm thinking that that dramatic hormone shift after, I guess, all the happy hormones of pregnancy um, triggered some pretty ugly postpartum depression i did at six weeks out when i started and you were still on the prozac at that point i was still on the prozac and and i i was i called my psychiatrist and i said you know things are not going well and we tried upping the prozac but it was getting so dark so fast um i mean i was we were living we, we, we were living on a 10th floor condo 
I was having visions of just going and throwing myself off the balcony. I didn't want to hurt my baby, but I was having constant thoughts of, well, what if he just doesn't wake up? Like, you know, mothers are terrified of SIDS and their babies not waking up. I was kind of like, well, maybe he'll die of SIDS. Not, it wasn't malicious, but it was, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. So that seemed like the only way out. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I thought, well, maybe if my baby dies, then I'll be okay with committing suicide because I won't be leaving my baby behind. This, These were the kinds of thoughts that were it's constantly... It's amazing how depression can warp reality. Yeah. Amazing. And it was... I, like, I, I literally could not be left alone because... And, I mean, the, the good thing and the thing I would say to anyone who might struggle with this or if you know someone struggling talking about it and telling the people around you no matter how awful the thoughts are they're just thoughts you 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 can't be convicted or you're not going to hell for your thoughts um at least in my opinion um that's what you know kept me alive i think was telling everyone around me i mean um well and working with the psychiatrist we threw everything at it i stopped breastfeeding um i went on i was on like three medications i was on seroquel which is an antipsychotic um paxil uh well butrin like this whole cocktail different dosages in the morning and at night they slapped an estrogen patch on me to get that going it was throw everything at this with not being certain exactly what would help or when but Let's just do everything. And I had like my husband had to he had to end up taking extra time off to be with me. And then he would arrange for different friends to like come spend a few hours with me like, OK, like go take a walk with Aaron now because she needs to go outside and walk. But we can't let her do that <laughs> alone. Um, wow. Yeah. I had like people had to bring me my food and like sit there and make me eat because I didn't want to eat. It was sort of like this passive kind of, well, I just won't eat. God, I, now I feel terrible that I didn't uh, have any contact with you from between our coffee and a month ago, and I had no idea all of this was going on. Well, how could you? Mm-hmm. And I don't, like, I, I wasn't really, yeah, you know, chatting just, with people on the phone. I just though. wanted to make it about me for a second. That's okay. It, it should be about you, Paul. It's It, it really should be. So what, did did these things come intuitively to your husband to to do to help you? Or was he seeing somebody that, that was telling him, here's what you should do? Honestly, Kelly Foster, the psychiatrist I worked with, she was amazing. So the first... So when I called, I got a recommendation to go see her from actually the lactation consultant I had, who had come to help me with some breastfeeding stuff when I was still breastfeeding. And I was able to call her before I got to the worst part where I wouldn't have even been willing to call her. Um, and she had us come in and she told me from the beginning, I'll only work with you if you commit to working with me for a year. And... She promised me from the beginning, it's going to get better. I didn't necessarily believe her, but I guess she's worked with enough cases that she could at least lie to me confidently. (laughs) Um, And my husband was there in the session. Actually, my mom was there, too. I because I was just like, I'm done. Like, all right, mom, 
and I, I do have to give a shout out to my mom for for stepping up and and being there through a, a really dark moment. It had to have been hard on her too to see her baby. I imagine. I and it, yes, it definitely because you're was. still her baby. Yes, you know every yeah every kid is yeah. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Feels that way. Whenever you, whenever a child dies, you know the, the thing you always hear of the the parents say is "my baby, my yeah. baby." Even if the person is thirty. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but go ahead. Um, so they were both there, and I was just like, whatever question the psychiatrist asked me, I'm just like, I don't know. Look, look at my mom. Look at my <laughs> husband. I don't know. What do you think the answer is? I was just, literally, I was, I was done. And and one of the hallmarks of depression is difficulty making decisions. Oh, it's so hard to make decisions when you're depressed. I didn't care anymore. I'm like, yeah. all right, tell me what you want me to do. I'll, I'll, okay, fine. Um, so yeah, she, I don't even want to wash my hair. You yeah, think oh, I'm going to give a yeah, shit about... <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. People had to make me shower. I mean, it was... Yeah. Um, so she, in the beginning especially, I was going to see her like every week because uh, we would like adjust the medication and she'd make sure I hadn't thrown myself off the balcony and, you mm. know, it was, it was good times. <laughs> um, she, ev- she, every time I saw her in, during that beginning period, would write a prescription that wasn't just... It, yes, there was a prescription for the meds, but there'd be like specific prescription, like that my husband was to hug me a certain number of times a day, that I was to walk this many times, that peop that people were to bring me food, and so she you know, sounds like an amazing psychiatrist, she is amazing. like a like a holistic. Yes, she understands that yes. the emotional as well as yes. the physiological. And she actually talked to me. Like it wasn't just a medication management. She would talk to me or at least talk to the people who came with me. And she did understand that everyone needed some directions. Um, there was a time where I was supposed to um, sleep outside the house that it didn't really work out because I refused to do it. But because she wanted me to get sleep. Because um, the she, baby was crying a lot. Well, a newborn, they they wake up throughout the night and even though people were coming to help us at, at night i would like be getting up and be like oh am i supposed to do something and it was the pressure and the, you feel like yeah. if you didn't do it you weren't being exactly. a mom which then made you more depressed exactly <laughs> um but sleep is incredibly important for postpartum depression like you can't get through it if you don't get sleep so um again Although that, that that depression probably ended up being the shortest in duration of any of my major depressive episodes, it was the most intense. Because um, looking back, I'm like, oh, I guess it didn't really last that long. It was two months-ish, two and a half months, which when you're living it day to day is long. But in the scheme of life, eh, two and a half months. But it felt, I mean, This sounds like it was just horrible it was it really was and but when it started turning around it really was a pretty steady upward progression and i think the meds were instrumental and i actually also think the estrogen really and i would imagine the support yes and and the those little things that while each one may not make you feel better that day right i think they all um build Build towards feeling more connected and Absolutely. lifting your spirit. And the cool thing about it, um, because 
friends who I had never really been that vulnerable with. I mean, this was letting it all hang out, kind of came out and were there with me and listening to me say these terrible things about like, I don't want to live. And, but yet they remained my friends and that, and they were there. And sometimes they came more than once and, you know, they had lives. Some of them had kids. Um, it really, I mean, I'm so grateful for it first and foremost, but at, being on the other side of it now, it's kind of liberating. Like, okay, well, all these people have seen me at literally probably my worst. Like, I don't know how much worse it gets than that. I mean, there was talk of hospitalizing me, but we didn't go mm -hmm. there. Um, and they, they're still my friends. So that was really, and I would imagine it deepened your relationships with them. Absolutely. Um, and, and with my husband, um, and that could have also gone the other way. Like, oh, he sounds like a great guy. He is. He is. Well, What's he has, his name? His name's McNeil. Yeah. And, um, he has a lot of good recovery in him and he's, yeah, he's awesome. Um, yeah. So there's not that I would want to go through it again, but I like, they're really, I've. I am the happiest I would say now that I think I ever remember being because th there's just nothing. I don't feel like there's really too much more to hide or to be worried about people seeing me and not loving me anymore. There's something really nice about having your cards on the table. Yeah. Yeah. There's something really nice about it. And also, if I wasn't before... I'm, I have no problem. I'll be on medication, whatever I need to be on for the rest of my life. Like, fine. I accept that. And that doesn't mean that I won't experience a depression again. I mean, I, I'm still afraid of what might come next, but no more experimentation of, well, let's just see what happens if I go off meds. No, I don't think that that. Yeah, is. I need to remember that too. I, about once every five years, I'm like, well, maybe. Yeah. The chemistry changed and uh, this new diet I'm on is Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 not an it's a valid thought and it, it's true your chemistry could change but you know what if the meds are working and the side effects mm -hmm. are not something that you can't live with I don't know I say stay on the meds. Or if you're going to do it don't do what I do which is stop seeing your psychiatrist and do it on your own. <laughs> He had said, because Paul, I strongly <laughs> recommend you not do this. Yeah. And I was like, you don't understand. I was pre-med. I got this. I know what I'm doing. I cook chicken on basic cable. Trust me. I'm good at words with friends. Yeah. I don't need you and your medical degree from Harvard bossing me around anymore. You are not the boss of me. Um, well, thank you so much for uh, for sharing that. Um, no problem. It's uh it's so nice to hear somebody who's in the mental health profession um share their stuff uh and i my hope is that for one i'm interested in hearing it but two my hope is that listeners um who are afraid to go to therapy mm -hmm. will hear a story like yours and say oh therapists aren't quote unquote perfect they don't have it all figured out no. I, there's there 
they will have compassion for my story because they will understand my story. And one of the the dirty little secrets of the therapy industry, I mean, people are generally attracted to it because they're crazy. <laughs> in a good way, in a good yes. way, but, but because they've had their own stuff. They have their struggles, yeah. Um, so I would say a therapist who hasn't gone through struggle, well, I'm not sure why they'd even want to be a therapist. Yeah, I, I don't... I don't understand that either. I, I think you have to have a burning curiosity about uh, the human condition yes. to be a good mental health worker. I, I think I agree with that. Uh, so one of the things that you and I were talking about uh, to do for your episode, uh, I, I had mentioned uh, if you want to print out some surveys and read them, that would be great. And yeah. you thought I said that you would take the surveys <laughs> and you agreed to do that. And so I was like, well, why don't we do both? If you're if you're comfortable uh, reading your survey responses. Um, sure. Uh, let's let's do you taking the survey first. Okay. Um, you didn't I didn't actually write out yes. responses, but I'm happy to do my best to, yeah. to just respond. Yes. So which, which surveys did you choose to, uh, to do? Um, I have first day in therapy and shame and secrets. Great. Let's start with first day in therapy. Okay. So you want me to do my answers? Yes. Your answers. Uh, okay. and just read the question. Okay. What brought you to? Th I'm just, I'm going to skip all the my, yes. my gender is female, um, and my age is 34. And yes, I am taking this survey as both a therapist and a client because mm -hmm. I am in my own therapy and I do see clients for therapy. What brought you to therapy? And if you're a therapist, what brought you to this field? Well, what brought me to therapy of my own depression and I am a therapist and what brought me to this field is probably the same answer, mm -hmm. depression, but a more complete answer would be that one of the therapists that I've worked with a long time off and on, I'm actually working with her again now, I'm the client, mm -hmm. um, I she just meant a lot to me and I really looked up to her and she was kind of the one who I looked at and was like, wait a second. So she does this as her job. She's, she's a therapist. So that's a job. Like you could do that. You could talk to people about their problems and maybe help them find their own solutions to them. So you saw how much she meant to you and yes. thought I could mean that much to, to, to somebody else. Yeah. And just huh. like I could, I, it was something that appealed to me as I, I want to do this as a job too. So she, she in particular, um, made me want to at least consider the idea. It took me a few years to actually apply to school and commit to the idea of it. Now, when you have a patient in session with you, mm -hmm. uh, does your mom do it for you and you just watch? <laughs> That's you. a good one. Um, no, my mom does not do it for me. Um, um, she has many strengths, but um, you got to be a badass to be a prosecutor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to be smart and she, and, she and, is. and uh, confident. And I can't even imagine. No, she's a force what, to be reckoned with, yeah. and um, 
But I don't think therapy is her strong suit. Yeah. So she can't I, do I, it for I, me. I don't think you would make a good uh, prosecutor. No, so I, I really wouldn't. In, I think you're both in your own <laughs> yes. uh, right fields. Um, okay, go ahead and continue. Um, okay. D- describe any fears you had associated with starting therapy, either as the client or the therapist. I would say my overwhelming hesitation, it wasn't as much a fear, was that I didn't think it was going to work. I didn't know what working exactly meant or looked like, but I, j- I, I was really pessimistic going into it. Like, all right. And this would have been when you were in your mid twenties or 18? Yeah, both actually. Yeah. Cause I did, I went to, you know, the, when I was in college, I went to the university mental health and did like one or two therapy sessions there. But that, that was awful. They, the, it was this male intern and he just kept asking me, are you sure you weren't abused as a child? And I, I don't think I, I like sexually abused. He kept probing mm-hmm. for that as if I had some repressed memory. And it just had nothing to do with why I was there. That sounds like me on the first 240 episodes of this podcast. <laughs> but but you're not you're not holding yourself out as a therapist. You're you're just looking for some juicy information. Um. So that that was an awful experience, and I think that put me off from seeking out therapy for another seven years. Um, but then when I was going to see a more legitimate therapist or someone who wasn't writing their PhD paper on sexual molestation. Um, I I just didn't think it was going to work. I had a lot of judgment probably toward myself that I projected. That's the word of the day projected onto the therapists and, you know, just having sort of, a, a bad attitude that I, I didn't necessarily show. I, I presented myself as, okay, I'm open to this, but on the inside. Well, you're talented at uh, silently judging. Yeah. It's a, it's a yeah. special talent. It is a special yeah. talent. Um, so I, I think I went into it with a pretty bad attitude and not a lot of hope that I'd get anything out of it. And a lot of resistance. Um, so I I really relate when a client comes in and is shy or reserved or you can tell if someone is or yeah, their brain's probably going is why am I wasting yeah. my money yeah well, the, I don't feel better right and, <laughs> I feel awkward and that's the thing and my therapist the first one that I really started working with was open with me about this in the beginning and I do the same with my clients now she said. So I want you to know, starting a therapy process, you're you're probably not going to feel better right away. And in fact, you might feel worse because in therapy, we're going to start talking about what's going on with you, maybe talking about some things in your past that may not be pleasant and it's going to bring up things maybe you haven't thought about and you might be walking around being like, why am I in therapy? I feel even worse than before I started it. And I and I have heard from people who bail at that yeah. point. It gets mm-hmm. too painful and they yes. bail. And it's like, no, you are just about to strike oil. Yes. There you are. Yes. It's the earth is starting to rumble. Hang yeah. in there. Yeah. And I, I, I think it's really hard to be a first time person in therapy 
and get through that hump of this just feels really crappy, especially if you don't have any precedent to know, oh, but maybe if I work at it a little more, I'll have a good insight or I'll just break out of a certain pattern or learn something that will help me. So yes, I would, my, my fear was more of a hesitation and a bad attitude. Um, of the fears I described, did any of them come true? Um, well, I, it, things, I do feel like starting therapy, there, there was a period of time where I felt worse before I started. And I don't even know if I even started to feel better even after I felt worse, but I reached a point where I wanted to come back the next week. Um, there came a point where I had at least some hope that, you know what, maybe if I keep, if I put a little more trust into this person and I keep going with this relationship and I come back and we talk more, maybe eventually I am going to feel better. I, but I, I would, I would say that I, being in therapy did not really make me feel better. In fact, I don't think I really felt better till after I took a break from therapy. Um, I, I, I've been in therapy off and on for mm -hmm. like 10 years now, but I think sometimes you, if you do a stretch of therapy, like you do six months, a year of therapy, and then step away from it for a minute, I think a lot of good processing actually happens then. Mm-hmm. Um, at least also, that's how it has often worked for me. And I also wonder too, if, if the, what was also being factored in, uh, was the fact that your brain chemistry was being maybe medicated, maybe not medicated and possibly so you had maybe all of those things going on at once. And it, yeah. that's one of the things that's so challenging about yeah. getting better is there's so many variables and you never know which one is failing and which one is working or it's certainly hard to isolate. It is. Them. But I would, I would, I think that's a good reminder that why I think, especially for depression, to be, if you're going to do medication, to do the counseling as well, the therapist can often be a really powerful reflector of, you might not be feeling a change or you might, might not be noticing that something is different, but a good therapist will be able to point out to you, okay, well, I know you still fantasize about throwing yourself off a cliff but i've noticed that you're actually exercising more now or or mm -hmm. or something a, a, the therapist can often notice changes in you before you can notice them in yourself yeah. and sometimes hearing them at least causes you pause and like oh okay and support groups too support groups too. often support the people in the support group will recognize the light coming on in your eyes before you do yeah, I think that's true. And I would imagine therapists as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that must be a magical moment when you have a client come in and you can see that the light has come on uh, in their in their eye. Um, just the one eye. You, you're just seeing people eye. with only one eye. Well, sometimes it's lazy eye. Or yeah, one in their eye. eye and a half. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that must be uh, so gratifying. It is. Um it is. And I don't know that there's like one moment where all of a sudden 
the light goes on. But for me, for me, at least with clients I've seen, it's, wait a second, like three months ago we were talking about this and now look at this evolution. And sometimes I'm just realizing it too and they're just yeah. realizing it and we're like, oh, oh that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, I'm just basing it from what I've seen in, in support groups. I can, it's usually the eye contact is usually the first sign of the healing is the words the person used to, their eyes were always Ah, downcast or going up to the ceiling and they couldn't hold it. There's a a confidence in their eye contact that to me is usually the sign that something is starting to click. The shame is starting to, uh, to go away. The, the clarity about, um, I don't know who they are, whatever, that there's hope. Yeah. Support groups. I can't say enough good stuff about good support groups. Uh, you want to continue? Yes. Uh, okay. As a client, describe what worked best for you in therapy. Example, having a safe place to be completely honest, learning new coping skills, homework, venting. Um, and as a therapist, what have you found worked best for your clients? So as a client, I would say homework sucks. I hate homework. Um, Me too. I, like if you say that I have to do something that just makes me not want to do mm-hmm. it even more. Um, you say homework, I hear nap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or TV. Mm-hmm. That's always good. Scrabble. Oh. Netflix. Ne- Netflix. I like Netflix. It's, a, it's homework of a sort. Mm-hmm. Good distraction <laughs> yeah. or avoidance. Um, so things I think that worked best for me. were having the messages in my head that I'm such a terrible person challenged and someone forcing me to, okay, fine. Yes, I get it. You believe you suck, but I notice these good things about you. And it can be so hard to take in. So uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. And I I literally roll my eyes. having that reinforced over and over and over again, that there's good stuff about me. Um, even when I'm talking about, yeah, but I didn't do this and I was supposed to do that. And I'm not, I'm just, you know, failing here and failing there. Having that continually challenged has been huge for me. Um, cause yeah, I actually you struggle with perfectionism. Yeah. Oh, cause it sounds yeah. like it. Yes. And, and what I'll do is if I don't think I can do it well enough, well, I'm just not going to bother doing it at all. <laughs> Me too. Because, again, there's so many... There's if I'm going to so- fail, I'm going to fail on my own terms. I'm not going to waste my effort and fail. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's inefficient. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't... I don't. Yeah. and I'm streamlining my failure. Yeah, let, like, let's just, let's just stick to what I'm confident I can be mediocre at. Mm-hmm. Um, the only moving part will be bed. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Me and bed, two parts. I love bed. I mean, bed is bed is my refuge. Um, oh, sweet, sweet bed. Yeah. Bed, bed's pretty awesome. Nobody understands me like my pillow. <laughs> it's true. I swear when I lay my head down, I hear it go there, there. <laughs> yeah. And, and flannel sheets in the winter. Mm. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, so th- that that's helpful. I think 
what's also helpful is being held accountable, not in a um, judgmental way, but being because I I also one of my tendencies is okay. I don't really want to come to therapy anymore. Can we like before I've actually done enough? Mm-hmm. Can we switch to just every other week or <laughs> I've done that. Uh, or you know what? Maybe maybe just once a month and oh, let me just take a few weeks off and then we'll pick up again. And I'm not saying that I disagree with taking conscious breaks in therapy, but I kind of try to just sneak out like, okay. And um, it took a while for my the therapist I've worked with for a long time to really call me on it. Like, Aaron, you're doing that again. And I really don't think you should. Um and probably if she had done that earlier in our relationship, I'd be like, well, fuck you. I'm done and I don't want to do this anymore. I probably wouldn't have said it like mm-hmm. that, but I would have put my, that. put my foot down and like, well, sorry. Um, so I think, I think being held accountable to do my process as best I can um, has been important. Um, yeah, venting's good. Coping skills. Yeah, maybe, maybe they're uh, like learning some skills kind of related to meditation techniques. Because mm-hmm. uh, as part of therapy, my therapist recommended that I take a uh, mindfulness meditation series and it was actually one, it was a group doing mindfulness-based stress reduction. This was the name of it, mindfulness-based stress reduction for depression. It was like an eight-week series. And I think I learned some good tools through that. Um, breathing, focusing on your body, um, walking meditation. I, I think those are really helpful, but I didn't necessarily learn them in my therapy with my therapist but she recommended it and i thought any 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 tools related to meditation i think are pretty awesome for whatever whatever yeah i don't know anybody's life that has been made worse by meditation right yeah although I, i i constantly fail at meditation do you really think there can be a failure at meditation? Oh, you're <laughs> no, kidding. I, okay, I was no, like, but I do know. feel like I fail at meditation. Uh, I do too. Yeah, I do too. It's so often. It's I always joke. It's uh, twenty minutes of me thinking about myself with my eyes closed. Yeah, or I fa- I fall asleep and then I, I can't, yeah. So that, that, that but it's hmm. better than not trying it. It is. Yeah. It is better than not trying it. Um, as a therapist, what have you found worked best for your clients? I don't think there's any one size fits all, um, but I think the only thing that is one size fits all is just empathy and listening. Um, but I, I think it depends on the person what's going to work. With some clients like homework, they're like, "Yeah, give me, give me something to focus on this week, and let's talk about it next week." Um, and some clients are more like me and. They don't want anything to do with homework. Um, so, yeah, I think it's pretty dependent on the individual. 
Next question is, as a client, what were your initial impressions of your therapist? Was there anything he or she did that was unsettling to you? If you are a therapist, was there ever a time you said or did something that you later regretted? Um, for me as a client, my initial impressions of my therapist was were that she... That, well, she's just holier than thou and that yeah a feeling that she couldn't really relate to me that that she was just in hindsight do you think that was accurate no not at all um she's been an incredibly supportive presence in my life for a long time now um and i do genuinely now get the feeling from her that she she likes me I think, or she fakes it really well. Um, and you were seeing her before you started uh, training to become a therapist. Yes, and yes. She must, I don't know if proud is the right word, but she must be really touched I hope. by the fact that one of her clients uh, is, yeah. is doing that. I think I'm not the only one. I mean, she's a supervisor for interns. I think she inspires a lot of people. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's cool. But I, but but in the beginning, I sure. Who is she? She, <laughs> I don't know. Sitting there, why in, is she wearing in her a scarf? leather chair? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and any mistakes that you feel like you've made, or things you regret uh, doing when you were? I think sometimes if if I feel like someone's really in crisis, not in crisis, like that they're gonna physically harm themselves but i'll get into problem solving too quickly and want to all right well let's let's solve this problem and it's sometimes really hard for me to pull back and not try to solve what seems like the immediate problem it sounds like you got a little bit of your mom's genes and you with with that yeah a little bit because i just want to okay well we can fix that yeah (laughs) um so that that i i think i have to watch myself with and i'm i think there's probably been times where i've jumped in with it too quickly that's good you recognize it though yeah it's a start what's the next one the next one is oh this question is for therapists only what do you what do you do to prevent getting compassion fatigue did you find when you were starting out as a therapist that it was difficult not to bring your work home i don't know that i've fully experienced compassion fatigue yet. And part of that's probably because for the whole time that I've been seeing clients, I haven't been doing it like as a full-time 40 hours a week thing. I've been doing it more part-time while I do other things also. So I I think that's been helpful. Um, And for me, even in the times of really dark depression, seeing clients has been one thing that I've wanted to do. So I don't, I'm not necessarily seeing clients when I'm in deep depression, but it's something that I'm like, well, I guess that's something I would want to do when you're like searching for that. Is there anything you would want to do? So sometimes I think oftentimes the idea of getting to work with clients again is a motivator to try to get better. Um, 
So I, I really enjoy working with clients and in terms of bringing work home, yeah, I, I yeah, you, th- I, I think about my clients. I mean, I feel like they're how could you not? Yeah, they're they're not they're they're you you're so intimately involved with them. Um, yeah, they're not a file of papers. No, they're really not. Um, yeah, so. I guess I, yeah, I do bring my work home, but I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah, I I think if it kept you from fulfilling your role as a mom and a and a wife and a friend, that would be an issue. But. Yeah, but I actually feel like so far, I mean, maybe there'll come a point mm-hmm. where I've seen too many clients or it's getting to be too much, but I think it helps enhance my role as a mom, a wife, a friend. And and sometimes sometimes a client might be dealing something that either I'm also dealing with or have dealt with. And there's like, it, it's almost like a little bit of free therapy for me. Like, oh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there can be something like I get, I get stuff out of therapy sessions with my clients often, not always, but often i had a, a therapist um we started a session she said you know i was thinking about uh you the other day and she you know shared something about you know whatever the issue was i was i was going through and i was so touched mm. i was like wow it it never occurred to me that once i left that room that the ther- that i would be in my therapist's um consciousness and that's that was proof to me that because I'm always looking for the proof that they're just doing this for the money, even right. though intellectually I know that's not the case <laughs> with therapists. I want to believe that that's true in my case that right. I'm not worthy of. It's tempting. Yeah, um, but uh, what's the next one? Okay, question for clients only. Do you feel you can be completely honest with your therapist? If yes, describe how you came to feel that way. If not, describe why that is, what changes you could make, or some things you think your therapist could do to help you feel safer. For many years, I would say, no, I did not think I could be completely 100% honest. I think there was always something I would hold back or even maybe fib about to make it look a little better because the shame is so deeply embedded. Like, oh God, I can't admit that. I mean... They'll definitely not like me then or think that I'm really a mess then or a hopeless case or... Is there anything that you can think of that you're comfortable sharing now that you withheld or minimized? I think I often minimized the the extent and frequency of suicidal thoughts when I was having them because one of my big fears was being hospitalized. Like so many people report that so many people don't want to be hospitalized. So I'll say that I'm having some, but maybe even if I am kind of starting a plan, maybe I won't really, I'll just say, Oh no, no, I'm just minimizing that a little trying, Mm -hmm. trying to strategically 
avoid an intervention that's that would take away my control when my therapist asked me are you have you made a plan Mm -hmm. i always say no but i'm looking for investors (laughs) (laughs) that's pretty glib (laughs) i've yet to make a plan but suicidal ideation is is i've probably thought about killing myself 15,000 times in my life. It's so common. I I don't know that everybody in the world has suicidal ideation, but I would say the majority of the people walking the earth, adults at least, have at some point, even kids sometimes have suicidal ideation. And I I don't think it's uh, a terrible thing to be stigmatized. And if you have had Mm. any kind of thoughts about killing yourself, it's, it's not abnormal. I sometimes forget that bridges are used to connect pieces of land. <laughs> uh, what's the uh, What's the next question? Are there more? Well, there's one more. Is there anything else you would like to share with a group of new therapists? Any insights from your work as a therapist or a client? I still consider myself somewhat as part of the group of new therapists since I'm not fully licensed on my own. Um... So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to withhold from the insights to share with therapists. Okay. Um let's do the next one. All right. Ooh, shame and secrets. Okay. Well, what did you classify your uh environment as slightly dysfunctional? Oh. Uh what what are the choices? Um Stable and safe, slightly dysfunctional, really dysfunctional, or totally chaotic? I would say it from, depending on the week, between slightly dysfunctional to extremely dysfunctional. Okay. Uh, My gender identify as female. Have I ever been the victim of sexual abuse? This is an interesting one. Um, Because in college... I feel like I ha- I was like uh, um, an actress in a, one of those like Lifetime original movies where I got drunk at the frat party and went back to the dorm room with the guy who I had just met and we had sex that I don't, I never consented to. I never really said no to it, but I remember I was so drunk, but I, I remember as it was happening being like, no, I don't, I don't want to be doing this. But I don't think I actually ever verbalized to him no. I was just kind of thinking no. And I still don't really know what that is. I, I, I feel weird calling it sexual abuse, but it was certainly not consensual intercourse. Um, and he was really drunk, too. And I'm not excusing it at all, but it 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 is one of those ones that I don't really know how to feel about it. I'm, I'm I haven't heard her say it, but um, uh, Amy Schumer has a term for that gray area rape. She calls it grape. Grape. I think that's a good term for it um, because yeah, and I mean, it and I know it's like... kind of a controversial issue in that it it's I don't know what you do about that. I mean, I, I would say, I guess, just don't get that drunk. Um, and I'm not suggesting that it's my fault, 
nor am I saying it's not his fault. I'm kind of But just, talk about it. Yeah. You know, talk about it with yeah. with somebody and yeah. don't keep it in trap inside yeah. and let that And I those, didn't at the time I didn't talk about it because I just felt like I did kind of feel like, well, that was my fault, so can't complain about that one. Um, so I did kind of take on the blame on myself, which I don't as much anymore. Um, well, I'm sorry you experienced that. Oh, well, I, I, I guess I'm sorry I did too. I think on the scale of kind of sexual abuse, I think there's a lot worse. Um, so that's, that's the only thing I can think of that might okay. th- qualify like grape grape i think there was some grape going on um have i ever been physically or emotionally abused if you're comfortable sharing what happened i i don't believe i've ever been physically abused um i was sometimes spanked as a child i know that you know it was a different time than it is now i did have my mouth washed out with soap a couple times that was actually worse than the spanking I don't think I, I, I know, in fact, that I would not do either of those things to my child. But that's another one of those. It's, it's, it's those a generational of, thing, too. Yeah. It's, yeah. Um, but I, I do think that might be considered abusive today and yeah. probably would be questioned. But it, it was a different It was time. a different time. Um, emotionally abused. I I do think that there was a lot of emotional, at the very least, manipulation. Abuse is such a loaded term. Um, if I guess let's put it this way: if a client told me that some of the things I ex- told me that some of the things I experienced happened to them, I would tell them it was abuse. I still have trouble owning it myself i think we i think we all do because we know the good memories we also had with our parents yeah and so we feel like we're saying if that was abuse then that means i have an abusive parent but no not necessarily right Uh, i think everybody has their bad moments some people it's (laughs) mostly bad moments (laughs) yeah and some people it's just they're overwhelmed and so yeah that's my thought yeah and I, I think that's a good thought. I also think, um, in in my case, that both of my parents have perhaps, me at, at the very least, some mood disorder issues. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even some personality disorder stuff, or at least a flavor of it um, that they've never really had treated maybe don't even ever recognize. And I think it goes back to their parents. Um, So I think there's kind of like a a thread of some mental illness issues through my family tree. Um, I mean, not surprising considering the depression you've experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's been a couple family members, like cousins, there have been some suicides. So... There, it's complicated. It's so complicated. It's I mean, that's why I started the podcast. Yeah. It's like uh, you can't do a five-minute magazine piece on this shit. No, no, and and yeah, I, I I hope that that as 
therapy has become and taking medication, being in therapy, going to support groups. I feel like it's getting more and more common and acceptable and something that doesn't have to be so loaded with shame. Like, oh my God, I see a therapist. I know people do still have shame about it, but thanks to things like this podcast and getting it out there that how many people, everyone has to deal with something. It's just a matter of degree to, to how much someone is in pain. So true. Um, I hope that we'll just keep going in that direction. I think we are. I think we're moving forward. So that yeah. people can just get help with what they need help with and not pass their shit on to mm -hmm. others and especially next generation. Um, if you've been abused, are there positive experience with the abusers? And does that complicate your feelings about them or what happened? Yes, of course. Um, I have a lot of positive experiences with my parents. I think they're loving parents and ultimately good people. Um, they, they sacrificed a lot and worked really hard to give my brother and I a good upbringing. Um, and I know um, that they had a lot of pain in their own upbringings. So it does make it really complicated, um, especially now that I'm a parent. And I mean, my kid's only five months old, so it, I haven't had a lot of really emotionally complicated interactions with him quite yet. Um, but I can only imagine as he gets older and he starts having opinions about things and feelings about things and testing your boundaries yeah, and that it's going to get, I'm going to have even more complicated yeah. feelings about my own upbringing. And then he will be a guest in 20 years. Hopefully. And uh, hopefully. I'm going to throw your ass under the fucking bus. As he, as he should, yeah. as he should. I'm sure I'm going to fuck up in numerous ways. <laughs> I mean, obviously I will. Cause I'm a failure generally. And well, you're a terrible person. Yeah. And so your core. And so eventually I'll be a yeah. terrible parent. You're not, your core is not unlike a uh, nuclear waste. It's yeah. not as dense. Um, it, it's almost like nougat. If nuclear waste was a, oh. a stinky nougat, oh, that's kind of like, like that. yeah, that's kind of like what that. you are. Yeah. 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 And if it was hypocritical. Oh, yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. No, no, no. I, okay. I own that. Okay. I like Good. that. Good. We're getting along then. Okay. What's the next question? What are your deepest, dark, darkest thoughts? Not things you would act on, but things you are ashamed to admit you think about. I'm going to move this mic just a little closer to you. Or, or sure. Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. Um, well, one, um, for sure, when I was in the throes of the postpartum depression was being somewhat hopeful. Well, maybe my baby will just die in his sleep. Um, that caused me a lot of shame after the fact, like, how could I think that? Or how could I not want to be with my child? Um, yeah, that, that was a big one. Um, some other deep, dark thoughts, not things I would act on. I mean, this is a hard one to admit, but, but sometimes, you know, some, some teenage boys are really hot. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to molest them, but 
some of them are really nice to look at. Um, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> are you comfortable saying uh, what is there like a cutoff age or I um like they have to be old like sometimes you don't know how old someone right. is but you can tell they're in high school. Um I don't know there's something about like that they look they are like on the verge of becoming like manly mm-hmm. like they but there's that they're still baby faced mm-hmm. there's just something i think of, i think that's youth, true about youth both. is attractive it is and, and innocence is attractive yeah. too and i think uh there's something attractive about both sexes when they're yeah. in that that just beginning yeah. to become uh adults yeah. yeah yeah i mean and i think a lot of people don't want to admit that uh i think we the only way to not act on things like that is to talk about it. Yeah. And another thing I really wish there was more of was a safe place for people who have thoughts about harming or or sexually molesting a minor, a place they could talk about it and sort of, vent it and one of my big um qualms with some of the rules about being a therapist the way the reporting laws are currently structured like what you're legally mandated to report so let's say a client comes to you and says okay i want help because i have thoughts of having sex with underage boys or girls um and they have young children um you're in a difficult position because you're mandated that the therapist is mandated to report thing if there's a risk of a child like an identifiable risk of a child being harmed so it puts the therapist in this position of okay here's someone who wants help and they're saying they haven't acted on anything because thoughts are there's nothing wrong with thoughts we can right. think whatever we want and there's no there's really no bad thoughts and that client for, needs to yes, talk about that exactly but the therapist is in this weird quandary so you have to decide what the risk is exactly so and then you, go and, ahead and you also you can lose your license if you if someone if like a board finds you were supposed to report something but you made a calculated decision you know what i want to help i want to give the person a chance to be in therapy so there so i would love if there was some way that um there could be some more protection for therapists to to so that they wouldn't so the clients would in turn be able because you have to tell your clients when they come in i'm legally mandated mm-hmm. to report these things and one one of them is if there's you know risk of harm to a minor child or a dependent adult so it, it, it i i've actually had the experience once of a client it wasn't sexual abuse but um he had a son and i had told him you know given him the spiel about I have to report suspected abuse mm-hmm. to a, a child. And he, I think, 
was having some issues with disciplining his son that I that he clearly wanted to work through, but he ultimately left therapy because I wanted to protect him. So every time we would get into the issue, I would just remind him, okay, I want you to know what my legal duties are because I didn't, I, I wanted him to right, make if you sure tell he me, knew. If you're if telling you tell me you're leaving things. buckle marks on his back, I'm right. going to have to report you. Exactly. And I didn't, I, I didn't suspect that, but I, do, I did sense that there was something he was doing that he wasn't sure if it was crossing a line. And he ended up just leaving therapy because he didn't want, like he didn't want mm. to deal with the risk that there might be a reportable offense. And I don't blame him. There should um, be like a uncomfortable thoughts, anonymous yeah. support group. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I also think people do need, there are people who want help to avoid causing harm mm -hmm. who feel like they can't get help because automatically they're going to be in trouble with yeah, the law. Boy, that's a tough and one. That, um, that that's going to be really laundry. hard as a therapist. Yeah. It's going to be really hard. Yeah. Cause you kind of don't want you, you can don't tell me anything that I have right. to report, but yeah. Mm. Um, should we go to the next question? Yeah. Okay. Unless you have any more uh, dark thoughts that you want to share. I'm sure I do, but I think I've compromised myself sure. enough already. <laughs> and uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate it. It's uh, I love when my uh, my guests go deep. Okay. And you are definitely going deep. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to be the standard bearer here. <laughs> um, okay. If you, where are we? Oh, what are your deepest, darkest secrets? Things you have done or things that have happened to you? Huh. What have I done? I I mean I I think my 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 shooting of a loaded firearm in a residential neighborhood, I mean albeit I I didn't mean to discharge the weapon but I did. If that's as bad as it gets, you're doing good. Yeah, but that, I mean the outcome of that could have been a whole lot. But that was worse. a complete accident. I, I don't want to let, let myself off that easily because I knowingly was holding a gun and yeah. not taking precautions with it. So I, I think that one's pretty, pretty bad. Uh, I don't recommend doing that. And uh, yeah, don't, don't keep loaded guns lying around. I had a friend who, who took her life with a large caliber gun wow. and uh, the year 2000 and it, I'm sorry. Uh, it, uh, it was, it was just so, and then she was missing for four days because, you know, okay. we hadn't found her, uh. I found her body and it was, she was so beloved by our mm. group, so beloved. One of the funniest storytellers ever, yeah. but she really hit her depression well. Mm. And, um, it's, she did not know how to advocate for herself. She just couldn't not be the welcome mat. And, right. um. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. It really is. And it's also just morally so complicated because I do act I do believe that if if you are suffering that much and you want to take your life that you should have the right to do mm -hmm. that, but at the same time if there's any possibility that maybe there's help, you know, I of course hope that 
that person you would find help in, instead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but I'm sorry that you lost someone. Mm, thanks. What's the next one? Am I gay, straight, bisexual, or asexual? Not interested in either sex. I think I'm mostly straight. Um, but I think it's kind of a, a continuum. Like oh, I, I absolutely think I appreciate so. a beautiful woman. Um, but I think I'm like mostly straight. Yeah. Um, are there more questions here? Oh, what best, oh, what best describes the environment you're raised yeah, in? Did we, we already do that, that one? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are the sexual fantasies that are most powerful to you? How does sharing them, how does sharing that make you feel? Um, well, I, I, I told you about the teenage boys. Um, and then I've also, I don't know that, I guess a recurring sexual fantasy is where I have a penis. I've always had a lot of penis envy. Um, I, I don't know why. I guess they just, mm. they look interesting. I kind of wish I could pee standing up. It's the best. I, I bet. It is the, every bet. time. Or pee in a bottle. Yeah. If you need to, like every time I pee in my backyard, which is almost every night when really? I let the dogs out, I you oh, sit. you pee with the dogs. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. All right. Um, I just think this is, yeah, this is so nice to just know. be able to, to yeah, do like that. squatting and peeing when you're a woman. It's just yeah. usually a mess. Yeah. Like, it doesn't sound good. Yeah. It's not, not um, fun. It, is it, do you picture yourself having a large penis? Is it any particular type of oh, penis? Oh, that's interesting. I've, I, it doesn't really have a specific size, but mm. I really like the concept of like receiving a blowjob. Like there's something oh, about so that. Oh, so that's that, the, it yeah. wouldn't, it wouldn't be to penetrate somebody else. It would be to be, maybe to that, be pleased. Maybe that too. Mm -hmm. But the, but most interesting to me would be receiving a blowjob. Yeah. It's so funny. Yeah. Just yesterday I was thinking about, um, what uh, because i had uh, uh, i had had coffee with a, a friend and she was saying that one of her fantasies was to peg her boyfriend you know what pegging i means? don't uh, where you wear a strap on and oh, then okay. you have anal sex with the you know your your boyfriend sounds awesome um <laughs> fake fucking a guy in the ass with yeah, a strap on is i always threaten my husband with yeah. that <laughs> Because he says, yeah, he, like if, if he wants to have anal sex with me, then I should get to have anal sex with him, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so my friend shared this with me, and she was just saying, you know, how it went and, and et cetera, et cetera. And I was, for some reason, I was thinking about it yesterday, and I was realizing that I, I wonder if... It's at all if that feeling is at all satisfying having having the strap on on because even though it's attached with uh, like a harness, mm -hmm. it's not really uh, yeah. there's no nerve endings. Yeah. Can, so it ultimately, I guess what I was saying was, I in that moment I appreciated the fact that I have a penis and I get to experience that. Lucky. Because if if I wanted to experience penetration, I could experience anal penetration, which I'm sure isn't the same as having a vagina, but it's still penetration. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Men always have it better in every sphere. And just remember that. I, Don't I, forget that. I no. I you know what? I I'm a little bit ashamed to admit this, but part of the reason I was glad to have a son is because I'm like, all right, well, he gets to be a man. He doesn't have to be a woman. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I I didn't know his um 
sex before he was born. We decided mm-hmm. to wait for it to be a surprise. And my husband actually really wanted a little girl. I mean, we both would be happy, happy with, with either. With sure. Whatever. Um, girl, boy, boy who mm-hmm. wants to be girl, girl who wants to be boy. It's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was kind of rooting for a girl for his sake. Like, okay, he wants mm-hmm. a little daughter. Great. And so when it was a boy, um, there was a little bit of sense of like, oh, he gets to grow up a man, like it's still somewhat a man's world and and he doesn't ever have to be pregnant, but he could still have kids. And So there's a feeling that his path will be uh, less painful, yeah, easier? I, I really think so. I mean, he doesn't yeah. have to get his period. Um, he doesn't have to be a woman who ages. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess if he decided he wanted to be a woman, he would have to be a woman who ages. Um, but if he goes through life identifying as a man, he gets to like be like wine and mm-hmm. get better with age. Now, see, I wish I could. And he also could, gets to have kids, you know, pretty much until he dies. Like, I don't know if that's a positive. Well, I suppose it depends you can on father, your attitude. Like, well, no, if you're yeah. a man, you can father children with minimal intervention. Like, I mean, didn't Steve Martin have a kid at like 70? Did he? So, yeah, something yeah. like that. And, and I'm jealous of that. Yeah. But we got to hold the door open for you, which is bullshit. Not really anymore. How often do you I see men stop. hold... I will stop then. Well, no, I mean, I think it's a nice thing. It's, it's at least a little something like, you know, mm-hmm. like a... All right. Well, you have to be a woman, but I'll hold the door for well, you. Well, the only we, reason we do it is so that we can check out your ass when you walk past. Oh, okay. That's uh, I wasn't supposed to divulge that <laughs> when I meet with all the heads of the banks okay. uh, later. They will be very upset with okay. me. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm aware as I say this that it's it's a very unfeminist thing to say whatever feminism means now, and I don't. I respect women. Mm-hmm. I just think it's easier generally. You want your child's life to be have yeah. as few hurdles as yeah. possible. I think that's yeah. that makes total sense to me. And you would be shocked at how many um, people that take the uh, men and women that identify as feminists that take the um, shame and secret survey have sexual fantasies that make them so incredibly uncomfortable because they involve uh, sexual degradation mm-hmm. of of women and as you know as a therapist it has nothing your fantasies there's no morality no. to sexual fantasies no. and to try to apply morality you know morale when you begin to act on them with people that <laughs> that yeah. are uh not consenting that's when morality uh enters into it but um i i'm more saying this to the listener than than to you since the subject came no up. but it's an important thing to remember that I, like i don't think people can be reminded enough there's no such thing as a bad thought there is or a bad feeling no no and i wish we would teach children that yeah well i i intend to teach mine that and I'm hoping as more people become more self-aware, mm-hmm. do therapy or, or do things that help them be in touch with themselves, that they can then pass it down to their children. I mean, just imagine if in kindergarten we taught just three things on every blackboard. No bad thoughts, no bad feelings, only healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them. Ooh, I like that. I mean, wouldn't that, I like that. Wouldn't that be good? That's really good. Yeah. Did you come up with that? I guess. 
Yeah. Sell it. Package it and sell it. All right, get out of here. I gotta get. <laughs> I gotta get on this. Um. All right. So where were you? you've uh, you got a huge dick? You're, well, you're, I, no, there's no size. It's not big. Okay. It, it, right. I mean, it's not small, but yeah, you I, don't want to short I, yourself. You yeah, get your. But I, I think huge could have its own problems. So I would say like good medium size. All right. Yeah. Okay. Like normal size, whatever. Which uh, apparently is uh, six inches. That's all right. Between well, five and a half and six inches is what. Erect. Yes, thank God. <laughs> okay. All thank right. God. Okay. I don't know who you've been with, but <laughs> holy fuck. <laughs> all right. I will. Uh, yeah. So just just nice and normal size. Okay. And I if get it that. has to lean, I want it to lean to the left. Any particular reason why? I'm left-handed. You're liberal? Yeah, I'm liberal. I'm left-handed. I advocate for left rights. Yeah. Oh, that sounds kind of weird. Yeah. Left rights. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I was... Uh, the other thing I was thinking about, after women get pregnant and you... Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry if this is too uh, graphic of a question, but um, sometimes their the vaginas change after you give birth. Yeah. And, you know, I really wanted to have vaginal birth and I was in labor for like a really long time right. and it didn't work out. Oh, that's right. Because you didn't have. Uh, but the one really nice thing about a C-section is your you know, the gets... vagina is the same. So that, I did, really didn't want one. Mm. But my husband reminded me afterwards. But guess what, honey? It's all intact. <laughs> so. I guess that is nice because I was wondering if, if a woman after she has a baby uh, is masturbating does or her husband is having sex with her um, is there a noticeable difference and I guess it depends on each I woman think it depends here's what I've heard I, I can't speak from personal experience I've heard after one child it can often bounce back and be as same as it ever was after six, after more than one child, greater chance of not of returning. some stuff kind of going one way or the other. But I think there, I'm pretty sure there's like reconstructive, like vaginal reconstructive surgery to kind of mm. fix things or or tighten them back up. I'm not exactly sure of the specifics, but yeah, it, it is an issue. And yeah, like prolapse or issues with like pee just kind of randomly coming out oh that's got to be terrible yeah childbirth is awful I, like i kept screaming during labor this is unintelligent design like this is not i, I can't it, imagine how painful it, it well and be. just it doesn't it, i'm i'm sorry but i i think like animals that are not humans they must be designed better than humans i our our whole and and plus the our kids come out so helpless like other you know like mm -hmm. the elephant is born walking right like yeah. and our like these little helpless little things that they can't do anything and they tear up their mother's vaginas <laughs> like, that is possibly going into an opening montage okay and they tear up their mother's vaginas they do it's not their fault but i know i know I'm by the time this interview is over, I will be so happy to be male. It's, <laughs> it's not even funny. Um, what's the next question? Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? Why? Huh? 
gosh. That's a really tough one. What would I like to be able to say to someone that I haven't been able to? I think part of my problem is that I've sometimes gone ahead and said the things and then you can't unsay them. Um, That's funny because you strike me as the exact opposite type of person. You strike me as the type of person that doesn't speak up uh, about oh. confronting. Yeah, I'm not usually confronting. Or at least you're the old you. Yeah, but in terms of if there's someone who's important to me, like who I consider a close person in my life, I tend to be really honest. Um, and with if it's received by the right person, then it can set the stage for productive conversation and hopefully growth and more intimacy in the relationship. But for example, with my family members, honesty, like, like real honesty has often just caused more strife. Well, it could also be something that you, something nice you want to say to someone that oh. you that you haven't been able to okay. you know somebody who's uh, for instance your therapist have you told your oh. therapist how much she means to you no i don't think i have well then maybe that well, would so be a nice I, yeah thanks thanks for helping me i with try that. i try to remember to say that to especially people in my support groups yeah i try to let them know how much they they mean to well, me Well, you know what i'm gonna see my therapist on wednesday and i think i'm gonna let her know how much what are you she gonna what to are you me? gonna say or what do you think you'll say well, maybe something to the effect of, you know, she's been, she's seen me through a lot and she knows a lot about me and is, mm -hmm. and that I think I've already told her that she inspired me to become a therapist, but I'll remind her in case I didn't tell her that. And that, um, I, I'm just, I feel so lucky to, that our paths crossed and that, that she's a supportive and loving person in my life. It's beautiful. Oh. Okay, I'll try to remember it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next question? Um, How do you feel after writing these things down? Is that the next one? Oh, what if anything do you wish for? Uh -huh. um, I think... I, I wish that the world doesn't go in the direction that it feels like it's heading. I mean, maybe every generation feels like, oh shit, like it's it's the end of the world, but, and so maybe they do. And I, and I share the sentiment of with, I mean, we're gonna run out of water and, or if that doesn't happen, somebody's gonna set off in a nuclear weapon or. I feel the exact same way. And I think about that a lot. And, a lot. And, and, and then I think, well, people in the 50s thought the world was coming yeah. to an end. But I also then I say, yeah, yeah but now it's 60 years later. So yeah. aren't we due? Yeah. And yeah. so I guess I I'm, I wish kind of for a backlash to sort of our modern way of life and sort of this individualistic and we're all focused on, well, let's buy stuff and Simplicity and Yeah, I don't frugality. really know what I'm saying, but I, I hope the world is really going to be a better place for the succeeding generations and not 
just all go to hell in a handbasket. I wish for that. Yeah, me too. Me too. Uh, have you shared these things with others? If not, why? If so, how did it go? Yeah, I think we kind of covered that. Um, and how do I feel after talking about them here? Um, I think, I think I feel okay. I think I feel better than I expected to feel actually when, when, when I guess I suggested that, Oh, maybe I should answer these survey Mm -hmm. questions on the air. I think I immediately regretted it and was like, "Uh, I don't know. Do I really want to, but I I don't, I don't feel so bad. I think your honesty, um, will help people. I think every guest that comes on here, and I guess I got to include myself when we share the things that, the little voice in our head says you should edit that out. Yeah. Those are the things that I get the nicest, most heartfelt emails from people yeah. around. And mm-hmm. those are the ones that I think um, impact other people's um, views of themselves positively uh, the most. Yeah, I think self-disclosure can be I think really, can really be. powerful that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else? Um, oh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Well, well I think I just did. We um, we share some thoughts and experiences, and it's okay. You suck as much as I do, or, or you you don't suck any more than I do. However, however you want to look at it. <laughs> We have we have to end it on that on that note. I know we have some questions that we're going to do, but that's just such a we're at uh, almost two hours, and that was just such a fucking great moment to to end on. So I think we'll save our questions for a return visit because uh, we are. If you're willing to come back, um, I'd love to. I'd love to have you come back and. I'd be happy to answer answer some questions. If people want to get a hold of you, Aaron, how can they do that? Um, they can email me at Aaron at newhabitscounseling.com. It's no periods or dashes, just just like that. Aaron at newhabitscounseling.com. Yeah. and it's E R I N. Um, or I guess I'm on Twitter at at Aaron at uh, I'm I'm new to Twitter, so it's okay. at Aaron new habits okay i'll put that when i post this i'll i'll put both of those things okay. uh links to them so if they if they want to get a hold of you yeah they can do it that way but uh thank you so much for um um just sharing so openly and honestly about uh about your struggles i think um you know i've had other therapists on who have shared about uh their lives but it, it was always as a part of um, an episode that had other elements to it. And it was really nice to be able to just do one where somebody who happens to be a therapist <laughs> is the, is the oh, guest. Gosh. And, okay. uh, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. So thank you. Likewise. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Aaron. Uh, before I take it out with a couple of surveys, I want to give some love to our sponsor. I love Squarespace. Not only do they have a great, inexpensive, easy-to-use product, but they have been a really good supporter of this podcast and other podcasts, and uh, I just get warm fuzzies in my heart when they uh, advertise on our show. Um, If you want to see um, the website that I put together, uh, go to 
paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. I wanted to have a place where, because people would say, oh, you do music, you know, send me some of your music, or I'd love to see the pictures that you take of dogs. So um, I used Squarespace. It took me maybe an hour or two to put all of my favorite uh, music snippets and dog pictures up there to arrange the different pages, and it couldn't have been easier. Um, There's no coding required. It's really intuitive, a lot of drag and drop things, and um, I just, I I can't speak highly enough about it. If you've ever tried to put um, your own website together, if you don't have the right intuitive tools, it is a nightmare. Um, So uh, give Squarespace uh, a a chance. It's uh, a chance. Don't leave Squarespace. Squarespace has been, they, yeah, they've been drinking a little bit lately, but give them another chance. Squarespace is very upset that they wrecked the car, but Squarespace wants to come back in the house. <laughs> give Squarespace a try, is what I wanted to say. Uh, start your free trial today. Um, when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, uh, use the offer code MENTAL and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. Um, like I said, professionally designed uh, looking websites, no coding required, intuitive, easy to use tools, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So go to squarespace.com and use the offer code MENTAL to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, you should. Let us get to some surveys. Um, This first one is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Kay. And uh, about his alcoholism and drug addiction, he writes, I haven't dealt with anything sober in the last two to three years, so I just don't know what to expect. How do people deal with life not being loaded all the time? Can you really handle life not getting fucked up? That just seems unreasonable to me. And I wanted to read this one because that is exactly how I felt and thought before I got sober. It can be done. It, but trying to imagine it when you are not sober is like a sightless person trying to picture colors. Just know that it exists and go to get help. For your drinking or your addiction and trust the process and before you know it you will be feeling a relaxation that you used to have to get loaded to feel that that's been my experience and the experience of a, a lot of other people because it's about developing coping tools so that we're not in that anxious angry or depressed state all the time that that we want to drink um I hope that makes sense. So instead of reaching for the bottle, you know, you reach for the phone to talk to somebody in your support group or you go for a run or, you know, I don't know. (laughs) I just bored myself. Good luck to you. This is, but it can be done. That's the thing that I wanted to say. It can be done. It is possible. It seems impossible when you're in that dark, dark place and all you can think about is another drink or another drug. I was there, and I'm not there anymore. This is uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Robot with Human Hair. And about his... uh, Oh... He has anxiety and depression, and the snapshot from his life, he writes, One time a few years ago, I had intended to go to a local Reddit 
meet up at a bowling alley. I showed up two hours early, sat in my car, agonizing over going in. I finally walked in one end of the bowling alley, walked straight through, didn't stop, and right out the doors at the other end, walked around the back of the building to my car on the other side. I get it, man. I get it. I've gone to parties sometimes for literally five minutes, five to ten minutes. Um, but I, then I tell everybody, just so you know, the reason I'm leaving early is you are tedious. My God. And you are not a, you are not a treat to look at either. And then the nice thing about doing that is you don't get in, you don't get asked back the following year. So you're in the clear and nobody calls you. It's a perfect solution. This is filled out by a teenage guy who calls himself Truman and about his uh, ADD and ADHD. He writes, I'm so encapsulated by a world of wonder that I forget I exist and I'm able to act within it. I'm not even sure what all of that means, but it sounds good. Um, about his anxiety, I can't breathe. There's a metaphorical gunshot wound in my chest and my heart is beating through my neck. I'm walking to school. About experiencing racial or cultural bias. bias. Um, he's uh, writes that he's mixed black and white. He writes, I'm too black for the white kids and too white for the blacks. An awkward beige middle ground. Snapshot from his life. Having to constantly adjust myself uh, on the subway because the existence of other people near me makes me so uncomfortable I feel like I'm melting into my seat. Thank you for that. This is a vacation argument. We got a couple of good vacation arguments from people. Um, vacation argument is kind of the, um, to me, it's it, it, it's kind of the 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 little brother or little sister of the awfulsome moment. Uh, never quite as as you don't get quite the Hall of Fame caliber things you sometimes get with a good uh, awfulsome moment. Pardon me while I take my shirt off. I'm getting a little worked up doing these surveys. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I sweat when I bore myself. I'm not boring myself. I was actually looking forward to recording tonight. You know, uh, shut up. <laughs> I was about to pat myself on the back for the fact that we're coming up on our five-year anniversary and we've never taken a week off. And I've really never wanted to. There's been a couple of weeks um, where I wouldn't say I dreaded doing the podcast, but it was a, it was a bit of a of an effort. But um, I just love doing this, and I love the feeling like I have right now when I'm talking, and I can picture you guys listening. Now, I suppose it's easy to picture because I get feedback. From you guys, I get emails. I bump into you in person sometimes. Sometimes I'm outside your window and you don't know I'm there, but I'm watching you. Yes, I'm watching you. Brushing your hair. All right, now I'm starting to creep myself out. But um, I look forward to this to this feeling. Um, I don't know what my point was, but it's... Um, It feels good to connect with you guys. I get so much emotionally out of doing this show that um, 
I want to thank you? Yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying is thanks. You can still go fuck yourself, but I thank you as you turn on your heel and go to do the mono-fucking. Is that what you call it? Auto-eroticism? Mono-fucking? Oh, shut up. Seriously. Seriously. This is... <laughs> I almost want to continue this horrible, horrible dead-end alley I've driven into. But I'm going to move forward. Uh, this is a vacation argument filled out by Callie. And she writes, sitting in a restaurant on our first evening at Disney World and all four members of the family crying, ages 50, 46, 13, and 10, wishing I could drink myself into a coma and wanting to die, wondering what the fuck was I doing, being guilted into believing I'm not a decent parent unless I take my kids to Disney at least once. It was the vacation from hell. I hate Disney and all the stupid fucks singing It's a Small World. <laughs> If you were, the, the, the surveys that people fill out, sometimes you can do a um, search on them on my end of the surveys and see what words come up the, the most often. And I think, other than words like the and, and uh, I think the word that you would find come up the most in vacation arguments is Disney. I'm not kidding. Like every sixth or seventh Survey seems to be about Disney. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself, No Grandma, I Don't Have a Boyfriend. Um, about her anxiety, she writes, um, Like the breaking news ticker at the bottom of the TV screen is broadcasting all of my fears, shame, trauma, and embarrassments to me 24-7, double speed while I'm trying to sleep about being a sex crime victim, like my body will never be completely whole or completely mine. Um, and then uh, uncategorized, she writes, sometimes I genu genuinely want other people's pity, and that makes me feel like an asshole. You shouldn't feel like an asshole. That is such a normal human thing to want. Um, I get that all the time. Um, and I'm sure you've heard it on the podcast when I'm around a woman who has maternal warmth um, I, I want to be rescued by her. I want, uh, there's just, there's just a hole there that, uh, you know, was never filled in, in childhood. And I imagine that there's a hole inside you that, um, that makes that seem, um, attractive. So don't beat yourself up. Do not beat yourself up for that. A uh, snapshot from her life, she writes, I feel sexual desire towards men, but the moment they get close enough to touch me, my whole body shuts down and I am revolted. Their breath feels suffocating to me. Their words suddenly seem like clever games devised to get me alone and hurt me. Or when, uh, or they just seem like naive children and I feel like continuing would hurt them too. I just want to cry and I always stop what we're doing and tell them I can't go on anymore. Then a few hours or a few days later, the de deep desire to be held, loved, touched, and kissed comes back again. But by that point, I've ended things for good. I fear that I will never find someone I feel safe with. I fear that I will be judged for being over 20 years old and never having had sex, apart from the repeated rape I survived as a child, which I don't count. When I bring this up with my therapist, she reassures, reassures me 
with something along the lines of, when the time is right, it'll be right. I'm not sure the right time will ever get here because the problem feels like it's inside me. Um, first of all, I'm so moved by, by what you, um, by what you wrote. And I just wanted to say that if you don't feel like having sex, if it triggers you, um, do not apologize for it. Do not feel bad for it. And what about seeking um, a relationship that is just romantic, that, that isn't sexual? Um, I know there are some asexual people who um, love to cuddle and love to you know, have the expressions of uh, affection um, that, that don't go into the sexual realm but are romantic. So maybe that's something to pursue. And who who gives a shit whether that's, um, you know, enough for in somebody else's idea or not. It's what you're comfortable with. And I think as long as you're you're doing the work with your therapist and processing the stuff that happened to you, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. And just embrace that and embrace who you are and, and your place um at this point in time where where you are because you are already this is going to sound cheesy but i mean it you are already enough you don't need to be anything different and fuck anybody that you know wants to tell you otherwise this is a vacation argument filled out by ivy oh uh, she writes, I started chuckling as soon as I saw this was a survey option because my family has had too many of these to count. And one argument that particularly stands out happened when my sisters were 10, 7, and 5. We were skiing in Colorado and had stopped by Starbucks after a long day. I can't remember what we were even fighting about, but my mother was yelling so loudly loudly, and using such profane language Nothing like killing the flow of a survey by not being able to talk. My mother was yelling so loudly and using such profane language that an employee asked us to leave before we even ordered. So easy to picture that, too. Um, This is an email that I got from a guy. Uh, We'll just call him, uh, we'll call him Bob. And um, he writes, Hi, I was wondering if you have done any stories on BIID, which is Body Integrity Identity Disorder. He writes, I have this condition and nearly three years ago I got my needed impairment. I'm now a below-knee amputee and it has been an amazing help. For those of you that don't know, Body Integrity Identity Disorder, people um, will feel as if they should have, like, um, for instance, they shouldn't have two legs. They should only have one leg or have no legs. And it's just, it feels, it, it doesn't feel right to them. And they fantasize about um, having limbs amputated or, or, or other things. Um, and it is an actual, uh, an actual thing. A lot of people um, scoff at the idea that it's an actual thing, but it, it, it is. Anyway, continuing with, uh, with his uh, email. 
Um, I'm now a below knee amputee and it has been an amazing help. I no longer have any of the obsessive thoughts like I'm not supposed to have this leg. It still amazes me how much it has helped. It feels like my whole life restarted when I had my surgery. Thinking about before my surgery, it feels like it was a different life. My thought processes have changed so radically and for the better. I can't help but to say that in severe cases, surgery should definitely be uh, a viable legal option. Uh, I'm autistic and have social anxiety. I found out that I may be autistic when I, I found out that I may be autistic when I was 27 and was diagnosed at 29. This has also been a huge turning point in my life. I now understand myself much better and I have an explanation for why I was bullied so bad in school and why I have difficulty with some basic self-care. I've accepted myself as an autistic person and have embraced that aspect of myself. I've started participating in disability and neurodiversity activism. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, this is struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself probably puking. And about her bulimia, she writes, After a drunk friend puked all over me, I came to the realization that I associate the smell of vomit with peace and comfort. And then a snapshot from her life. I live in an apartment with four roommates, so I always puke in the single stalled basement bathroom. I've come to love the smell of vomit so much that I usually stay in there for a few minutes afterwards and relax. Today, after I left, I turned the corner to get my mail. As I did this, I heard the janitor enter the bathroom. I had just left and cry out, oh my God, that smell, as soon as I walked in. As soon as I walked in. It was then that I realized how sick and crazy I truly am. I think she meant as soon as he walked in. Anyway, um, Vacation Argument by Dr. Dub. He writes, I can't remember the subject of the argument, the first actual screaming fight of our marriage, but it was intense enough that while driving out of a small town in Utah, we got pulled over by not one, but two cop cars and were told that they'd been chasing us for over three miles and we hadn't even noticed that they were there. That's... <laughs> That is fantastic. Um, this is a very heavy survey. Um, I was going to read it last week, but I, I was just, um, I don't know, I was just kind of, um, couldn't take any more darkness. And uh, so this is really the only dark survey. Um, uh, the rest are just, uh, we got a couple of awful some moments and a, and a happy moment. Um, I think there's a happy moment in there. But, um, yeah, this one is, uh, it's pretty long and it's pretty dark, um, but it really moved me. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Amanda R. Hold on one second. Whenever I say hold on one second, that's always because I forgot to mute the track that the outro music is on and it starts playing. Let's see. She is... Pansexual in her 20s, raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She writes, During sex recently, my partner told me to come for daddy. Even though this phrase has worked countless times to get me off, this time I lost all arousal and was suddenly tossed into this memory of being a toddler at nap time. I remember my dad saying, Lay still, harshly, and smacking me on the diaper. It was a non-painful spank, but jolting as he was expressing frustration that he had to lay with me until I fell asleep. 
I was very squirmy at this age and very sexually aware. I know I was uncomfortable in bed because I remember thinking about sex constantly, even if my dad wasn't my abuser. Being two or three and having obsessive sexual thoughts while laying in bed with him during a nap time was very uneasy and felt inappropriate. All I could think about was sex, not with him, just always having thoughts of sex when I was supposed to be trying to sleep. Someone should pay for this, but I can't remember who to blame, so guess who is unkind to themselves? Uh, who is unkind to themselves now. Other sexual abuse. Was molested by my friend who was two years older than me. She made me finger her vagina, and if I didn't, she threatened to tell our parents what we were doing. I'm pretty sure she was getting off. I was between six and nine, not sure the exact age. The abuse went on for a few years, I think. She would also finger my vagina and make me smell it. From then on, I have had a weird hatred for my vagina because she kept making me smell it like it was disgusting. I didn't like smelling it uh, when she was forcing me to. I never orgasmed with her. I know I was masturbating by this time, um, and I had... I know I had... I was masturbating by this time, and I had orgasm, but I didn't like this girl. Also, I didn't know how to have sex with a person. I didn't want to be touched by someone I didn't like. Sex with anyone other than myself at that age was very sensitive because I know I was touched very early in my life, toddler years. But I can't put together the solid memory of that. I remember stuffing things into my vagina at age five and masturbating constantly for as long as I can remember. I don't remember not knowing what sex was. I told my mom that my brother uh, and on a separate... I remember telling my mom... Oh, my mom that... I think a word is missing here. I I told my mom that my brother and on a separate occasion that a friend of the family molested me, but when I was questioned by a family psychologist, I began to cry and my story became inconsistent. The psychologist then asked me why had I lied, so I just cried and said that I didn't know. Then the interview was over. This was documented in a police report that I found when I was a teen. There was no follow-up after that. I feel angry that I can't remember everything that happened. Uh, There are large gaps of memory in my childhood, and I can't help but wonder if it's just normal or are those gaps significant. Also angry that my mom didn't try harder to investigate what happened to me. Then, and sometimes now, I feel like I did something wrong, but I can't remember where that guilt comes from, and it makes me so sad. I just want to go rescue myself from whatever was happening. I feel like this is why people have kids, to rescue little versions of themselves. I don't believe that that actually works. To me, the idea of having kids feels like me feeding my mental illness and coping in an unhealthy way with not knowing what happened to me. I can't do that to a baby. It seems so selfish. If I haven't figured me out, how do I take the psychology of another into my hands and expect to not leave traces of my wounds with them? I feel conflicted and sad and just lost about the sexual abuse. Some things would be would just be nice to know. My sexual interest tapered off by the time I was 18, had no real interest in sex until I met someone I really liked and felt safe with. She's been emotionally abused. Um, She writes, My mom breastfed me until three, slept in the same bed, always slept very close, until I was eight, walked around naked in front of me well after I'd started puberty, and she didn't stop walking into the bathroom on me while I was naked until I screamed at her repeatedly to stop. 
I never wanted to see her naked. Her body disgusted me. Looking back, it seems like she was constantly trying to see me naked. I don't remember her looking at me with what seemed to be a sexual expression of any kind. She just would look for way too long and make me feel un- uneasy. I could never be naked in passing, always a lingering um, a lingering moment. I felt like she thought you belong to me so I can look at you if I want. It felt like she was trying to be controlling. Uh, she would sometimes make comments on my weight or the shape of my body or my stretch marks and compare them to hers at my age. I started having weird sexual dreams about her when I was in my mid-teen years, and sometimes I still have them, and they make me very nauseous. In the dreams, she usually is trying to or is successfully fucking me, and I feel horny and turned on, but then very sick after, or I will stop in the middle of it and run away. I always wake up feeling sick. Usually after this, I avoid her phone calls for a few months. I don't have any memory of her physically molesting me, but I do think her actions strongly lean towards emotional incest. Uh, By the way, thank you to whoever gave that emotional incest shit a name. She just wouldn't hear what I told her I wanted. In fact, to this day, she still tries to kiss me on the lips or comments on my weight and it infuriates me. She won't give me my space and guilts me for being, quote, such a private person, which I am. I believe it is 100% because of her that I am so private. She made me feel so exposed and unsafe that I didn't want to let anyone in that close. She totally fucked my ability to establish healthy boundaries and relationships, like when it's appropriate to let people become close to me. It was a big confusing hurdle in my first serious relationship. I didn't let him see me completely naked before or after sex for more than the time it would take me to get dressed or undressed. And I didn't want him to see me undressing as a sexual act. I hate that I psychologically couldn't allow him to see me naked and let him appreciate the sexuality of my body, but I have felt so disgusting for so long. For all of those reasons and many more, we didn't speak for a whole year when I was 19. It's been very on and off since then. Sometimes I just can't take the emotional stress I feel by talking to her, and I will go months without answering a phone call from her. She knows by now that I am probably not dead, but just avoiding her. She doesn't know why, I guess, because I haven't told her. Fuck, why does life have to be so heavy? Oh, my heart goes out to you. And I have several uh, female friends whose story, in fact, when I read this story, I read this, I sent it to one of my female friends and I said, you have to read this. And she was like, oh my God, that is my story. That is my mom. That is me. Um, so uh, if you hear this um, and you would like me to, to put you in touch with my friends so that you can... Um, you can swap uh, stories or communicate with each other. Um, I would be I would be happy to uh, to do that. Um, anyway, continuing. Uh, any positive ex- experiences with the abusers? Uh, yes, we used to travel around nice neighborhoods and cities and look at all the houses we wanted to live in. We also have a very similar fashion style, so I want to take the good from her. But sometimes my anger and my emotional in- inability to express to her why I'm so hateful at times makes my relationship with her very confusing, and I'm not sure how close uh, to allow her to, to get to me. We have been very distant for about eight years. I'm just exhausted that we don't really have a deep connection that isn't tainted by awkward memories that make me squeamish. To which I want to say, 
do not minimize the shit that your mom did to you. That is, in my opinion, that is sexual abuse. And I think absolutely emotional incest, um, but to me, sexually uh, abusive, uh, not respecting a, a, a child's um, privacy, especially in adolescence, and just barging in on them constantly in the bathroom when they're naked or going to the bathroom. That's, that's fucking, that's awful. It is awful. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, well, I want to finger fuck my partner's ass because he has these occasionally controlling tendencies and I just want to dominate him and prove that I am masculine enough to fuck him back. I don't always like to be the one having it stuck to me. I'm laughing to myself right now because it sounds silly and it's thought to be socially or sexually deviant, but I know that shit isn't true. The image is funny and almost doesn't turn me on, but it does. I guess sex can be funny. Uh, darkest Secrets. Last week I smoked cannabis, then took a shower while listening to some vague, abstract lyrics of a song uh, that I was at the time convinced uh were about abortion. I squatted down in the shower to pick up a bar of soap that dropped, and I felt a familiar sensation. It was emotionally neutral at first. The water was splashing onto my head, running down my face and body, hitting the shower floor. But then suddenly I was triggered and sent violently to a memory from the hours after an abortion that I had had four years ago. And the hours after the abortion, I was at home walking around like a zombie in pain, um, but panicked. I just passed out in the clinic because of an anxiety attack. I decided to shower to get warm because of the hard cramping that happens after the procedure. I squatted down in the shower, letting the hot water run down on my head uh, and body and watching as the heavy red stream washed thick clots of blood down the drain. I just kept trying to push it, it out all of the blood, falsely believing that there must be more parts in there since I was bleeding so much. I remember thinking that if I could get all the pieces out, my relationship with my partner would get better, returning to no return to normal, or my shameful feelings of getting pregnant in the first place would go away. Last week, during this flashback, I stayed squatted and just stared blankly at the floor, zoned completely out. I was reliving what seemed like every minute of what I went through four years ago in the shower. Loss, relief, exhaustion, deep emotional pain, and thoughts, why won't the bleeding stop? It's out, right? It's out. When can I forget this? How can I be so relieved the morning sickness and horm hormonal changes are over, but in so much more emotional physical and physical pain at one time? I wanted this pregnancy to end. I don't want kids, so why do I want to have his babies? It's not right for us. We don't want a life of parenthood. I have no fucking money for a kid. And after I felt myself coming back to the reality that I was no longer in that moment, the tears and the shaking started. I couldn't stop for an hour. I think that was my first flashback, or whatever it's called. It was scary not being able to control the tears or how violently my body was shaking. I'm realizing now that I'd forgotten that whole scene that happened four years ago when I was feeling emotionally vulnerable and showering in the same position. All I wanted was to forget, uh, I can't see this word, to forget then, forget then I did, and then it all came thundering back into memory. 
and I realized that this shit isn't really going to be over until I face the emotions head on. I'm allowed to feel sad that I lost part of myself and someone that I love, even though I made that choice. So often, I feel like I'm supposed to always feel totally at ease with the decision. It's a complicated task to allow myself both emotions. Not regret, but sadness, mourning, and relief, happiness all at once. I wish there were more people to share grief with who specifically had abortions for unexpected, unwanted, accidental pregnancies. I feel like the miscarriage experience can be similar, but women's reproductive issues and pregnancy termination is still such a foggy path, so hard to see the resources and to overcome the shame and stigma. I found some solace in those happy hour podcast episodes about female reproductive health. However, the possibility of relating to someone who chose to terminate the pregnancy doesn't she doesn't see children in their future and how they've dealt with grief because of our often natural desire to procreate with the one we love would mean so much. If you have anyone like that, or if I'm missing an episode, please let me know. I'm so ready to talk about it or hear someone talk about it. I feel like I could scream. It's killing me to keep it inside. And I just want to let people know I get it. If you're hearing this, I get it. If anyone wants to reach out, I hope we can find a way to connect. Well, send, if you hear me reading this, send me um, your email. And one of the things I'll do is I will start. I think there is a there is a thread um, in the forum already um, on uh, pregnancy. Maybe I'm not sure what the thread is titled, but um, maybe start posting there and um, see see if you can connect to, to anybody and I'm I'm racking my brain trying to think of um, guests we've had who have terminated their pregnancies um, I know we've had ones where there have been, have been miscarriages um, so I don't I don't know but anyway shoot me an email um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I think I just wrote this one in the last page, ass-fingering my partner. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? To my mom, I'm sorry for the impoverished way you were raised. I'm sorry you were black in a time of civil unrest in the United States and that American culture was shoving the white image down your throats and you were forced to assimilate. My favorite thing about you is hearing you use your natural accent. It makes me feel at home. I'm sorry that my dad promised you things you never got and he chose you because you were easy to control. I'm sorry that he hid his racism from you until after you were in love with him and I'm sorry that you submitted to his reign and that his actions have scarred you for life. I have I have suicidal through my childhood. I think there's a word missing. Um, I think maybe she said I was suicidal through my childhood, and because of the fundamental Christian cult I attended with you by default, I couldn't tell anyone. I thought it made me a sinner. What if I had actually done it? I only wanted a painless way to go. I don't want you to feel any more guilty than you already do for the way you screamed at me, the physical and emotional abuse, the oppressive religious background you forced me, you forced onto me. So many things. Oh, and go back in time and put some fucking clothes on. To my dad, where were you? You were right there, but where in the fuck were you? Every man your age that I meet and respect, I try to impress with my kindness, my ability to love and forgive, my generosity, my loyalty, my friendship skills, my beauty, my musical talent, my sensitivity, my intelligence, and all I want is approval because you were silent. 
Where were you? Wow. This is one of the most powerful surveys I think I've ever read. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish for answers. I wish therapy didn't exhaust me so much financially and emotionally sometimes. I wish I could come out of my depression just enough to play music more. Have you shared these things with others? Shared with a partner. It went well. It's just heavy stuff. So it's hard to dump on someone very close. Also shared in talk therapy and support group. I feel open to sharing these things now and it's gone pretty well. I think I choose trustworthy people. How do you feel after writing all these things down? Relieved. I feel like crying can wait until tomorrow. I think I think like I will sleep well. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Thank you for existing. We are not alone. Thank you so much for taking the time to, to Amanda to share all of that really heavy stuff. And um, I, I can't imagine um, the complexity and intensity of emotions someone must feel after pregnancy loss or termination. I, I, I can't, I, I just can't even begin to imagine. And it is not talked about. I've never heard it talked about, but then again, I don't get out of my living room. This is an awful moment. Oh, the other thing I realized editing this this episode is, holy shit, I go out to coffee a lot and talk about some pretty fucked up shit with friends. Um, I think like 10 episodes in a row during the interview, I'm, well, I was having coffee with my friend the other day and... Uh, Anyway, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself D and R. And she rent, she writes, went out of my way to visit my mother from the opposite coast for her birthday and Mother's Day, same weekend. Got up early and went to the nursery, loaded up with flowers, pots, and dirt, and then spent hours planting everything on her deck to create a bright, beautiful, private spot for her. As soon as she woke up, I exclaimed, Happy Birthday and Mother's Day, and gestured like a game show host towards her new little garden area. Her response? Make a list of the stuff you want to have when I kill myself. <laughs> oh my God. That is so fucking awfulsome. That is that is both a parade and a funeral at the same time. That makes me so happy and so sad. This is uh awful moment filled out by PJ, and he writes, and he's a teenager. He writes, I've been in a pretty dark place since grade eight, struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. Because the internet is a thing, I've researched nearly every option for suicide, read every opinion I could on each method, the pros and the cons. Fast forward to the past few months when I decided to go to the emergency room because I felt suicidal and had contemplated jumping off of a building for a good 20 minutes. I stood on the roof with tears streaming down my face, so I knew it was time to get active help. Good for you for, for doing that, by the way. I was in the hospital for, and that sounded patronizing, I hate myself. I was in the hospital for th- three full days and didn't say anything to anyone for the first two. On the last day, I finally talked to a guy named Mike and we were discussing different methods that we've tried. 
This, to me, is the definition of awfulsome. He told me he tried to hang himself, so I said I tried that as well, and the results were the same. Human instinct kicked in, and the will to live was there. It's hard because you don't want to talk about suicide and all the negative aspects that come with depression, but we have to realize that other people feel the same way. We're all in this together. Speaking to Mike and having him tell me about his attempts gave me a lot of hope because now I know that I am not alone. That is awfulsome. That is awfulsome. I'd say that's more awesome than awful, though, but um, that's like the definition of bittersweet. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Shepherd, and um, oh no, I'm going to read that one last. This is one uh, filled out by, uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Valiant Equus. She, uh, and her happy moment, she writes, the intoxicating smell of horses, having my arms around a horse's neck and pressing my nose into their mane. The smell brings forth a flood of calm and love. Animals have literally saved my life. Having my dogs and cats spoon all around me in bed when I'm feeling ill, pained, or depressed. It is some of the most unconditional love I have ever felt in my life. I have to agree. It is just when I'm depressed, having Ivy and Herbert as close to me as possible. They're never close enough to me, I gotta say, though. Ivy just for some reason loves the back, the crook, the back part of my knee. So when I sleep on my side, she loves to go in that place. Uh, and Herbert very rarely comes up uh, close enough to the pillow because I, I honestly, if I could fall asleep with his entire head in my mouth, that would be. That would be good. Or just our lips touching. Oh, that is so weird. And yet I'm so not ashamed. If you could see Herbert's lips in person, I mean, you think his butthole is magnificent. His fucking little baby lips. Uh, Carla and I joke that he must just put chapstick on them before we wake up because they're always shiny and they just look... They're, they, they just... They're pink, and it just looks looks like if you touched them, you know they 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 just spring back. <sighs> Do you ever have that moment where you just you can't believe how much you love your dog? You can't believe that they are so fucking cute. It's, you you just, you're like, I look at you every day, and how is it that today I still can't believe how cute you are? That I've ex I've been experiencing this thing of looking at your face for 11 years, and it still makes me grind my teeth because I want to bite your face off. All right, this is our uh, last survey. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Shepard. And he writes, while I was recovering from ankle surgery, my girlfriend decided that was an excellent time to break up with me by text message. Already awfulsome. I have an ulcer that flares up from time to time, and the stress of getting dumped along with the Vicodin ate a hole in my gut. Trying to make it to the bathroom with an ulcer attack is hard enough, but I was bleary-eyed and all snotted up from crying and on crutches. As you might expect, I fell over and landed on my surgery ankle. 
As I laid there, wondering what I had done to earn this shitstorm, my dog came trotting over and started licking my face. I laughed and cried some more, appreciating his sensitivity to my sorrow, until I noticed that he had repositioned himself over my cast and was vigorously humping my leg. It was a perfect moment of clarity, where the universe made it abundantly clear, hey, you have a broken heart? Watch this dog fuck your foot. Sometimes we just need a dog to remind us of how ridiculously unpredictable life can be, so we might as well laugh. God, that is a Hall of Fame awfulsome moment. Thank you for that. Well, I hope this episode gave you something, a laugh, a cathartic cry. Uh, Maybe you got a bowel movement out of it. Maybe your migraine eased. Maybe maybe this podcast made you realize what kind of podcast you never, ever want to listen to again. Maybe that's our service. Anyway, if you're out there and you're struggling, remember, you are not alone. You are so not alone. And um, there is help if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for it. Um, it can be the most important phrase. And there's nothing wrong with not knowing what to do next. It can, it can be a gift because then you can let the universe in. And there are a lot of people that want to help. There's a lot of people that don't, but there are a lot of people that do. And um, yeah, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.